It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the What's Real podcast, episode 152. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my cohort, co-conspirator cohort, and uh, co-tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. What's going on, the J? Oh, the J is pumped up as ever for the What's Real podcast. Hey, Ed, brand new episode, bringing in that consistent, constant, weekly, brand new content. I'm flowing here early. Let's do it. Hey, Ed, I am as pumped this week as the Shogun's executioner himself, Ogami Ito, as we wrap up the month of the samurai, which I'm kind of sad about. We'll get into it. But this shit's going to be epic. Hey, Ed, one, five, two, let's go. Absolutely. And as the J said, we're going to be wrapping up the month of the samurai this week with Lone Wolf and Cubs, White Heaven and Hell, the sixth and final entry into the series from 1974. Uh, We are going to be talking about a brand new, well, pretty new horror movie from 2023 that's getting a lot of buzz. Uh, It is Skinamarink. And of course, we're going to talk all kinds of wrestling, including the 2023 Elimination Chamber and the newest episodes of WWE Biography on the NWO. And the newest episode of WWE Rivals, all about the Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant feud. And also, we're going to be talking some goofs and much, much more. So, uh, the J. Uh, We are, of course, as we've said here a billion times, recording the show on a Tuesday. So, this past weekend was NBA All-Star Weekend. Uh, Did you get a chance to watch anything or see anything that happened over the weekend? Yeah, I kind of dipped in and out of it. You know, I was definitely interested in the slam dunk contest. So I caught the majority of that and, and some other things. I caught a bit of uh, the game. Yeah, the uh, the game was a goddamn travesty. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if you I thought this was cool. Uh, but like, so, you know, how, like they have coaching staffs, right? Like they're, it's made up of different coaches from around the league. I don't know the guy's name, but he was one of the Denver Nuggets coaches, and he was getting interviewed after the game, like in the press conference area. And he's like, you know, it was a really good weekend. Like, everybody seemed to have a good time. Like, hope the fans had fun. And then he was like, but, yeah, that game. There was no he defense. Was, he, he was like, I'm not going to lie. That was the worst basketball game I've ever seen in my entire life. He's like, I would never – Watch something like that is entertainment. It's frankly kind of embarrassing. Uh, I was watching a movie on Sunday night, and when I finished up, I was like, oh, the All-Star game's still on. It was in the third quarter, and it was seriously like 174 to 158, and I was like, holy shit. And then I saw that Jason Tatum uh, would go on to set the record for the most points in an all-star game. He had 55 55. points. (laughs) Guys were shooting half-court shots and just dunking and shit, and nobody was playing defense. It was – that was pretty bad. And then, you know, the dunk contest was fun, but let's not gloss over the fact that a dude who plays in the G League won the dunk contest because no stars fucking do this anymore. Uh, the the three point contest, Dame Lillard won, but Julius Randle had a pretty bad outing. And I'm a Knicks fan, and I didn't really get why he was even in that in the first fucking place. Like it's again, I feel like this is something that comes up on the show too about just how 
piss poor all the all-star games are anymore. <laughs> I know that's I was that's what I was going to say hey Ed cuz last week we were talking, you know, stemming off the Pro Bowl uh, a bit about all the different sports all-star games and everything and and we had both said that the the basketball one's probably overall the best and then a week later <laughs> this is like just I mean I you know you get that it's an exhibition, you get that the stars don't want to get hurt and everything, but this is just it's not even like you mentioned when that coach said it's not even a game really. Yeah, but then stars got hurt anyways in the game. Right. <laughs> somehow people still like, get hurt. Uh, what a mess! But you know, I just figured it was something worth bringing up here on the show because you know that okay. We so now we're going into the second half of the season here after the trade deadline and everything. Have you been paying attention at all to what's going on around the league? Yeah, a little bit. What do you, What do you think about going to the playoffs here? Like any. Any expectations or anybody, you know, after the trade deadline or anything that you, you see now as like being something that they weren't before? Yeah, I mean, the, the trades have been pretty cool to, to me. I know, you know, you get a mixed reaction from that, but I mean, there were some blockbuster trades, you know, going on, which changes the landscape of the NBA, like you said, going into the second half of the, the season a lot. So, I mean, that made it pretty interesting to me, you know, Durant first and foremost. Yeah, I agree. in Phoenix, that's interesting. It's going to Kyrie, take, of course, it, and you're probably not even going to like really see these teams until the playoffs. Like they're playing now, but like they're getting, they got to get chemistry in order and get their lineups together and kind of figure out what works and shit. So like it could be a thing very easily where guys, you know, like Durant was hurt, so it's like I don't know how many minutes he's going to. be. They're probably going to slowly bring him in. Like so, like once the playoff starts, you're really gonna see what these teams are made of, and I think that's pretty fucking interesting at this point. Yeah, no, I agree, and you know, there's still your usual suspects um, kind of around, except for Golden State. You know, they're at 500 right now, which is which is pretty crazy at 29 and 29, uh, kind of out of the playoff pictures. If you know, like they say, it would happen tomorrow, they wouldn't have made it. Um, they just need to get in. You know yeah, how that goes. Once they get in, that's that's true too. Uh, your your New York Knicks, you know, doing yeah, their boy. thing. They're in the playoff picture, thirty three and twenty seven record. And, I hope and they again, can get to the fifth seed with yeah. Bo- with uh, Brooklyn kind of not being as good. Right. Yeah. Brooklyn and Cleveland are kind of rounding out like the middle of the the East there, and then uh, you know Philly is still pretty good. Uh, Milwaukee, of course, with Giannis, and then you know Boston who just got hurt. Yeah, the honest, the honest got, hurt. got hurt. Yeah, so how 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 long is he out? I don't know, but I think their situation is kind of similar to what I was saying about Golden State. Anyway, like it really doesn't matter as long as they get in, they're going to be fine. Yeah, like you know, they're, the the East is tougher, I think, than people think. You yeah. know, because everybody's like obsessed with the West and shit, but it's like, dude, Boston's still really good. Milwaukee's still really good. Uh, Philly, Philly can end yeah. up being something, even though I don't really particularly care for them. And like James Harden doesn't scare me at all in the playoffs because that's when he completely fucking disappears. Um, I think I I actually didn't throughout the season, but like I have pretty high expectations on the Knicks. Uh, I seen something where like Brunson in the last fucking like thirty games, he's averaging thirty points a game, and that's more than like dudes like Kevin Durant. Like, yeah, that's they were solid, like, man. Thirty points a and game. A, and everybody's kind of going on and on and on about how he ended up being like the perfect free agent for the Knicks, which I've seen. Dude, you know, just creates spacing on the floor. He's the reason why Julius Randle has even had a good season this year. Um, so, like, I do – and 
The Knicks also have Emmanuel Quickly, who looks like he's like a really strong contender for six man of the year. Dude plays really solid defense. So, you know, like they're built for it. Like, I'm not saying they're going to win anything, but like, I think they could at least potentially get out of the first round, which for me is fucking massive being a Knicks fan. But we'll see. I just generally expect it to go in a shit direction for some yeah. reason or another. You know how that goes with me. But well, like uh, you said, once you make it in, that's that's the big thing. If they can get into the playoffs uh, from where they sit now, they're basically a six seed. So once you get in, anything can happen. And dude, I I kind of get super fucking excited and happy around playoff time for the NBA anyway because it's always been. You know, it's like the the weather's getting nice. It just reminds me of like back in the day, whenever it was, it was always around the time. Yeah, leading into the finals in the early summer. Yeah, it's like so. You know, the summer is about to like kick off, and I'm looking way more forward to this summer than I was last year. So uh, that definitely helps. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's always a good time of year for that. I think we're going to be seeing some some pretty good basketball uh, regardless. So it should be neat. Yeah, the NBA for me was another thing that after the pandemic, I kind of got back into it again that I had been uh, pre-pandemic for whatever reason, you know. And I, I know it, the podcast helps too because you, you've you always been a consistent NBA fan. I kind of dip in and out, but talking to you about it too keeps me abreast and kind of keeps me interested. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely dig the, the postseason. That's what I always tell people. Like I was talking to a friend of mine that was saying like they weren't watching a lot of NBA recently. And I'm like, it really doesn't matter. Like, if you don't have a dog in the fight, like you don't have a team that you really care about, you just like basketball. It's like, then just wait till the playoffs start. And watch that shit. Like, yeah, that's why I cheated last year. I think I watched, watched like the two rounds, like the the semifinals and the finals. You know, and yeah, I mean, I mean, you got to do what you do. You know, I like the first round because obviously the most teams are playing, so I kind of I'm interested to see, yeah, who's see what's real and who's not. Yeah, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as long as you like, dude, I love the late games. That always helps like to, during the week and shit. Like if I could just throw in hoops at 11 o'clock at night, I'm not mad. So, you know, I'll definitely do that too. But uh, one thing I also wanted to bring up here before we take our first commercial break is uh, something stemming from this weekend's elimination chamber. And uh, um, there's no need to talk about it when we actually talk about it in the wrestling segment. But uh, it seems that Ariel Helwani, uh, former MMA uh, journalist, I suppose, uh, covers wrestling to a degree. He's done some TV stuff. Um, he is apparently working with the WWE, uh, has been for a little while, seemingly or allegedly. Um, his agent is Nick Khan, who is one of the major people behind the scenes. Uh, he might even be active CEO or assistant CEO. I don't forget how they did that, um, of WWE. Um, and, and a lot of people were kind of shitting themselves about this, too, because the dude's been positioning himself as a wrestling journalist for a while. But then the reality comes out where he's working for the WWE, kind of a conflict of interest. The dude kind of looks like a turd uh, to me anyway. But uh, what do you think about all this, the Jay? Because I see everybody online is like losing their fucking minds over it the last few days. I feel like it's just overblown. Hey, Ed, you know, I mean, we've been dealing with this with Dave Meltzer for years with you know, criticism for Dave Meltzer and who like the dirt sheets. Well, it, but this is a different thing. It like, is, but, but it goes into the, like you, you kind of even mentioned how you said a supposed journalist. And, and I, I think that's where this controversy, if, if you will, comes from is people saying, you know, like to be a true journalist, you need to be completely unbiased. And, and, well, and that's, you the, know. yes, that's the, that's a hundred percent the point that I'm making here. So, 
It, and and just, I agree with that. I mean, the, the, he definitely has ties to Nick Khan, like you said, who's the, the is he still considered the president of WWE or CEO is? Yeah. What, yeah. So he's still a, a higher up at, at WWE, put it that way. And, and, and as a defined factual tie to him as being his, I think he was his former agent before he went to WWE, Nick Khan. Uh, but by any means, I think that, yeah, he he's definitely getting paid something to be involved in, in the WWE now. But he's kind of denying it, you know, because I, I know the article I pulled up, it said that uh, Ariel Hawani is uh, still denying, you know, he reiterated that he is not a wrestling journalist is what he said. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, he's not a wrestling journalist because he works for WWE. That's exactly the point that was being made. But I don't know. It's just and he uh, he always had that heat with Dana White and UFC and that and basically led to his release, of- which him at UFC and then yeah he's been tweeting back and forth with Tony Khan and well, Tony did, Khan criticized that, him and everything. Do you remember that interview that they did not too long ago? Yeah, that's what really it was awkward, about from 2022 like, last year and and uh Hawani like said that that was just a terrible interview and that's what kind of brought everything back up with Tony Khan like you know it, it, it was because your ties to to Nick Khan that I'm not going to give you the information that you're trying to get out of me in an interview. And it's almost like why, you know, I don't know how he talked him into it, but why even do it then kind of thing? It's just a waste of time. Yeah. I mean, it, it works both ways, 100% on that. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a, Vince would never do something like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's, dude, here's the sad thing is it's not so much anymore, but Tony needs to realize that wrestling is still a dirty fucking game. Like, it can get real nasty. Like, people do fucked up shit to each other all the time. It's just part of the business, and I think that Tony has had pretty decent dealings with other companies and other, you know, presidents and shit like that. So, like, he hasn't seen as much of that, but, like, that's what he's going to get from the WWE. Like, there's no doubt in my mind. Like, even if Vince isn't pulling the strings anymore, it's still, they're the Disney of wrestling. That's what it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it it said, uh, it went on to say he did get paid by WWE, whereas he initially turned down his first video package voiceover that he offered last year. He said he was hired by BT Sport. It was primarily for UFC, but Dana White threw a fit, and that's when they started getting into it, and then he moved to do WWE interviews. And yeah, now he's at the point where he's just kind of saying that I'm not a wrestling journalist. I did this for fun. If you have a problem with it, fuck you. Yeah, so fuck me then, I guess, because that's weird. Well, like I said at the outset, Hey, I just think just for this to have blown up on professional wrestling, social media, as much as it has, we go back to that two words, who cares? Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm not going to watch him on WWE TV a whole lot anyway, so I'm not really concerned about it one way or another personally, but I just thought it was something worth bringing up because it's got so much traction. It's a big story. A hundred percent. But, uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's it for the Open here. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, me and the Jay are going to be talking about 2023's Skinnamarink. So stay tuned for that much more. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Join us next week for episode 153 of the What's Real Podcast. It's another huge professional wrestling segment as WWE on A&E continues with the biographies on Jake the Snake Roberts and the Rivals with Mankind versus The Undertaker. And we have another special double feature segment. It's the movies that made us. 
This is Timothy James with the Whisperer Podcast, representing Goose or Goose for episode 153. The guys get zany and crazy talking about Patrick Mahomes getting hammered wearing the WWE title, some chick murdering her husband, heart attack picks, and owls. All that and much more next week on episode 153 of the What's Real Podcast. Skin a marinky dinky dink, skin a marinky do. I love you. Hello, we're on the air. And we're back, and it is time to get into a fairly brand new movie. Uh, this is directed by Kyle Edward Ball. Uh, it's called Skinamarink. Two children wake up in the middle of the night to find their father is missing, and all of the windows and doors in their home have vanished. Um, Skinamarink's definitely uh, experimental, I would say for sure. Um, something that immediately comes to mind for me, and this is going to sound like I'm completely shitting on this movie, and I'm not when I say this. The script for it was definitely written on a fucking napkin. Uh, It was based off a short film uh, that's about 10 minutes. Uh, This one is, on the other hand, uh, 100 minutes. 140, yeah. An hour and 40 minutes. An hour and 40 minutes, yeah. Um, But it's really interesting. Like, and okay, I never do this, but there's a reason for this. So we do. You can wait if you want to. The J, it's fine. Uh, but on the five star rating scale for this movie, I give this one three stars. Now, with that being said, this is one of the best three star movies I've ever seen. If that makes sense, um, I did like the movie. It's not like I did not like the movie. Um, and this is going to be a different kind of a review because there is not, there's very little dialogue in this movie. Uh, the, the two children that you see in the film are the only two characters that appear in the movie and you never see their face. You hear them talk a few times. Um, this movie also does the, uh, manufactured film look. So it looks like it was shot on film. It's grainy. Um, and this movie takes a very, very, very unconventional approach to two different things, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and just shots in general. It's really stylish and fairly artsy. I didn't see it as being pretentious at all. Um, the movie's been compared to uh, like having a nightmare as a kid or the feeling that you get, like I've said this to a lot of people when talking about this movie, when you were a kid, did, were you afraid of the dark? And if they said yes, I'm like, then you'll like this. If they said no, I'm like, you're probably going to fucking hate it. Now, I asked you that question, and you told me, yes, you were afraid of the dark when you were a kid. So, the J, what are your initial impressions on Skinamarink? I would have to say that's the biggest strength of this film, which, which a lot of people have described it as er- experimental. Which I think that's a really good description because this is not your traditional film experience by any means, uh, you know, especially with a significant running time of of all these shots, like you're saying, and very little conventional dialogue, character development, I mean, actors, period. (laughs) Like you mentioned, you don't even see the kids' uh, faces. You see like their feet here and there and you hear the little girl whispering a lot which is creepy we'll get into some of that stuff but uh, initially here hey ed you know and again as i must mention just being in the independent film world and stuff this this was really interesting to me because i've never seen anything like it and exactly to, to your point of the 
being afraid of the dark as, as a kid. The, the reason that I was afraid of the dark, which, which might correspond with a lot of people, was that I was a creative kid. So I would make a lot of things happen in my head that weren't there, of course. You, know, you which, freak yourself out. You basically. freak yourself out. And that's what this experience kind of encompasses if you watch it from that perspective. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, now, I, we made, I don't, what, is there anything you did not like about the movie? Like a lot of people were saying, and again, you're coming from somebody that can can put up with slow burns, and and I watch films for the shots and different things. There were times that I was definitely getting bored, you know, portions okay. of it. I, I would say, yeah, that. yeah, I'm not going to argue with that. I mean, I I'm willing to give and take a little on that. That's that's because how I feel. what what I think they were doing with it, like, and this is not. A one and I understand it is not going to translate to a lot of people. Maybe even listening to this, it's probably the most polarizing I, movie that's come out in years, and that's saying a lot. Well, I'm really like one of my favorite. Like I love imagery and like photographs and all kinds of shit like that. Like you, you've seen shit that I even put on my Facebook and stuff. Like a lot of Forty Second Street photo. Like I'm kind of enamored with certain imagery and yeah. just certain things like that. And I just think it's cool. Um, so like that part of the movie fascinated me um i even told you this before that years ago i had an idea of making a movie similar to this not in like the two kids at home kind of like none of that but more of like a subdued kind of fucking you're showing certain imagery instead of necessarily what's actually happening and things like that but the conclusion in my head that i came to upon with that idea is no one's ever going to watch this um, that's obviously not the case for Skinnamarink, but now the other question I have for you, the Jay, because now did you see the trailer for this before you watched the movie at all? Yeah. Once you told me about it, I, I started looking into the, the film. Okay. So was what you got, what, what were, were you expecting that? Was this completely different than what you were expecting? Was it just, did it fool you? Like what, what was your kind of like you know, comparison to what you thought going in after watching it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it was kind of what I was expecting, not the overall package, if you get what I'm saying, but it was kind of like, I think just from your description, it's not like you spoil it or anything, but when you mentioned, you're like, if you're scared of the dark, you're probably going to be into it. And in the fact that some, somebody else, you know, I think I just read a little blurb or something, nothing major by any means, but somebody said something like, it's almost like, a haunted house experience. So, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, with those expectations in my head, it was kind of like, okay, I kind of am picking up on, you know, even from those brief descriptions that I had in my head before seeing it, that, you know, like I could, you know, once it started moving, I'm like, okay, I could kind of see what this is in, in a way, you know, but then I, again, as it progressed and with different aesthetics of the film and everything, that there was a lot of stuff that, stood out that was cool there was a lot of stuff like i mentioned it was kind of like redundant and kind of portions where it got too slow for me but then it would pick back up you know like particular scenes with the little girl whispering and they they kind of use subtitles even the girl even though the girls yeah speak in english in an english spoken movie they still had subtitles because she's a, a little kid that's like whispering and kind of mumbling 
and, and, and that kind of like, added to kid it. voice too, so she doesn't like pronounce things correctly. Right, and, and, and then every once in a while, she's like looking for her dad, and and like the dad voice comes in. It's like look under the bed, you know, and and yeah, there's a lot of creepy stuff in this too. It, it kept me, it kept me enthralled. It really did, even as much as I got bored here and there. And warning, there may be a few spoilers in here because I do want to kind of get into this stuff. I like, okay, so if you've not seen the movie and you don't want anything spoiled, you should probably turn this off now. That's your warning. Okay, yes. So I like how the movie was super ambiguous with things like you don't know if that was their dad. You don't know if it was a creature. You don't know if it was their imagination. You don't know if their dad was the creature. You don't know if this is a figment of the children's imagination. You don't know if there's potentially someone in the house trying to kill children um, and potentially being successful at it. Like this movie could be something very, very simple and very, very like, oh, that's neat. The, the dark fucks with you. Or it could be something really, really fucked up and sinister. I like that. That's a good point. I I wanted to steal this because uh, I thought this was a good overall breakdown that I kind of agreed with. And it's from Richard Newby, who's a top critic on Rotten Tomatoes and does movie reviews for Empire Magazine out of the okay. UK, which is a magazine yep. I actually personally have purchased many times. And he said about Skinnamarink, it's an unsettling Warshak test with a haunting ending that will settle in the pit of your stomach like a stone, but it can be a polarizing experience that pushes the limits of patience. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. Um, I I had heard somebody say, like, this is actually a better movie to watch at home because of the storyline of the movie and what you're seeing. So, like, if you're in a house and it's dark and you're hearing shit I, in your house. I did like, take your advice, and I, I watched it at night in my den, which is a pretty dark room in my house. So it was a, definitely okay. a cool atmosphere to watch it for myself. But me personally, this is one that I wish I would have seen in the theater because I think it would have been more immersive to me and it would have kind of like forced me to sit there and kind of just pay that's, attention that's a great to point. nothing that was yeah. going on at times. So it builds tension. And dude, you know, again, me being somebody that's like obsessed with imagery, the last shot of the movie is fucking awesome. Yeah. It's really cool. It's really hard to explain. Uh, it's creepy as fuck. Um, I don't know if you saw the same thing that I did, the Jay, um, but I fucking thought that was really great. Like, that's one of the reasons why, too. And again, I already gave my review. It's a three-star review out of five. But like, again, I have to reiterate, if I give something three stars, it's still worth seeing. It's still a pretty decent movie. Um, anything under three, and it's kind of like at your own risk shit. Even two and a half is not that bad. Um but I I don't know. I think this is one that I'm either going to really, really appreciate more and like it better as the years go on, or it's going to be the complete opposite. And I don't really know where that's at right now, but I seem to think that I'm going to like this one. Uh, you know, it's going to stand the test of time because I don't really foresee us getting a bunch of other movies quite like this one because it's difficult to pin down what the movie really is and does. Like, I was kind of frustrated before I saw it because I'm like, why is it that everybody talks about this movie? They like, can't fucking explain it. And then I <laughs> yeah. seen it and I'm like, oh, yeah. now I get it. It's an experience so for sure. It is. And that, and let's be honest, at least for me anyway, is like being a big movie buff and shit like that. That's part of the fun of going to a movie is the fucking experience. If it can deliver uh, it, 
a remote experience to this one, then to me, it's a winner. I agree. And, and again, you could kind of look at it too as a perspective thing completely because different people can look at a lot of this imagery and come out with completely different emotions than the person next to them. Yeah, that's you know? true. And that's, that's a big part to this too. That's really cool. And, and again, man, I, I always push for, for groundbreaking things and for new and unique stuff. So I would kind of be hypocritical if I didn't give Skinnamarink a, a chance. So I was glad, you know, you wanted to do this for the show. Cause again, with the buzz, I was going to get to it. And, you know, like we always promote once it popped on shutter, uh, you know, I, I was all in and it, it's something that I would have been upset seeing it years later if I didn't give it a chance because it is such a unique experience and there's nothing really else like it. And, and we use the, the terminology so much when we talk about certain films and, and different things, doing numerous reviews from all aspects of entertainment that we do here on the what's real podcast. Hey, and we say a lot of the time with certain things that it's kind of a, there's no middle ground. It's like you either love it or you hate it. And it's funny. And I bring that up because I'm kind of in the middle with it, you know, because there were those aspects that, that were kind of slow and, and things, which again, as, as a cinephile, you, you kind of, uh, can can even appreciate just the shot and imagery of it, like you're saying, but I'd be remiss not to bring that up as opposed to some of the emotions that it did bring out to me, like, you know, thinking about being a kid and waking up in the middle of the night and all this weird shit going on. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting concept and an interesting gimmick. Um, I don't think it's an easy gimmick for someone else to try and rip off. Um, it's, I mean, I, Put it this way, too. This is something that we've kind of talked about here on de in detail previously um, with Terrifier 2. That kind of went to theaters and kind of took the world by storm and made a bunch of money. And so did Skinamarink. And, like, that's within the same six-month period. The two major independent horror films made it to theaters and both did very well financially. That's kind of a good sign for the genre in general. So like regardless, like one of the movies I've seen, the other one I didn't. And regardless of what I feel about them, I still think it's important that things are doing that. So I like that completely. is a good sign for the genre. So like I'm really in that regard, I'm definitely applauding both of those movies for being able to do that. Because, dude, when you watch Skinamarink, it's such an anti-mainstream movie that like, you know, like people like regular folk that just want to go see a movie, like they're going to fucking hate it. A lot of people I'm sure walked out. It's a movie for movie people. So, like, I kind of appreciate that, too, to a degree. Um, but, yeah, I'm glad that these two movies were able to accomplish this. And this is just the second half of it. And I'm kind of curious to see whatever this next one's going to be that kind of can accomplish that, you know, get to the same type of standard that those two reached in the last six months. I mean, even with Terrifier 2 coming off of uh, somewhat successful for, for a shoestring budget from from its original one being a sequel, uh, having a higher, somewhat higher budget. The Skinnamarink budget was $15,000. And as we speak, hey, it is grossed over $2 million. Yeah, and I forget what the budget was on Terrifier 2, but it made over $8.5 million. Yeah, I think it was a little, I think it, Terrifier 2 was in the six figures from what I can remember without it in front of me. But 15000 and the film makes over $2 million. Uh, huge success. Really appreciate Edward Ball, or I'm sorry, Kyle Edward Ball, going out on a limb, putting something out there that isn't going to be for everyone, but that's the art form of it. And as far as that goes, hey, Ed, as I'm sure you can agree, 
you could tell that Kyle Edward Ball is going to be, or I should say is a really good filmmaker, like from a technical standpoint and things like that, because the images and kind of the way he put this whole thing together with just this zany kind of, like you said, it's a great word concept was pretty impressive to me. Yeah. I mean, dude, considering this is a $15,000 movie to be able to have the look that it has is really impressive. Um, you can tell the people that, you know, like the, the people on the technical side of this movie knew exactly what they were doing. Um, it's not amateur hour out there with these guys. Like, and to be honest with you, th- this is something that I found funny. I'm not naming any names or anything here, but I know a handful of independent filmmakers that I've seen like bitching about this. And I'm like, dude, I've seen your stuff. And it's like, I think you're just mad that they were able to make something like this and get all the attention and make as much money from it that they did. Like, it's a bitterness thing. Like, yeah. you, like you could be like, it's not for me. Like, I saw somebody specifically say, like, this isn't for me, but, like, a lot of you guys are going to be super fucking pumped about it. I'm like, that's cool. Like, that's a pretty good way of, of handling it. But... I think it does have a lot to offer, though, like visually, like, you know, like you were saying about the guy being a good filmmaker, like there's lessons in this movie for for people that want to make movies. I don't give a shit what anybody says or thinks like you can learn from this. There's some good shit in it. Yeah, because I think the consensus in a nutshell is that for some it might be scary, but for a lot of viewers, it's just frighteningly dull. And the more positive take on Skin and Marink uh, you know, this is all from Rotten Tomatoes, where it can be more confounding than frightening, but for viewers able or willing to dial into its unique wavelength, this unsettling film will be difficult to shake. And I think that's where we're coming from, where we're kind of we're able to put aside, you know, the slow burn aspects and kind of the unique gimmick of not having actors or traditional dialogue and things like that. And kind of just, uh, you know, I like that terminology, this unique wavelength and kind of go for the ride. Just let yourself just you know, sit there, watch it, and take it in. Absolutely. So uh, I think that's pretty much it uh, for Skin of Marink, but uh, we've been waiting with bated breath to Jay. What is your rating on our five-star rating scale for Skin of Marink? Yeah, you did the um, the unusual opening rating, hey, Ed, which which was cool. I, cheap plug real quick because we don't get to do it, and especially for those that, that listen consistently to the podcast, uh, this was something that will make you help maybe get through certain things to show where we're at here in the What's Real family, but our independent film company, Churchill Pictures, is actually our latest feature film, The Unsung, is distributed by Bayview Entertainment, and they're the distributor on Skinamarink with, I think it's IFC Midnight, so... Pretty yep. cool that the Bayview Entertainment is is putting this out too. That's you know we're part of the family of. So wanted to shout that out. That's really cool. Um, I'm going to go a little less than you, Hey Ed, just for some of those uh, slower moments. But I, again, it was just a really cool experience. I'm giving give it two and a half stars. All right, so that's our rundown of Skinnerink. Uh, we are going to take another quick commercial break, and whenever we come back, it is time to resume and sadly end the month of the samurai with Lone Wolf and Cub, White Heaven and Hell from 1974. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. Join the What's Real Podcast this February for Month of the Samurai. We are going to be covering all of the Lone Wolf and Cub films from Sword of Vengeance all the way to White Heaven and Hell. Month 
of the Samurai. So join the What's Real podcast in the month of February with a story of father and son revenge in Month of the Samurai. And we're back, and it is the last time here for the Month of the Samurai, our journey through the six films of the Lone Wolf and Cub series. Uh, This week, we're going to talk White Heaven and Hell from 1974, directed by Yoshiyuki Kuroda. Um, In the sixth and final film of the Lone Wolf and Cub series, the final conflict between Ogami Ito and the Yagyu clan is carried out. And that's pretty much what this one is. Um, it's kind of a long, dramatic buildup of a film. But the thing is, is the last portion of the movie pays off like a motherfucker. Because once they get in the snow, yeah, this movie kicks into high gear. Um, but dude, the thing is, and it's really weird, it would seem like this movie would be really, really disappointing. Because of the pacing and how, like, the first, you know, almost half of the movie is pretty subdued. And the movie's only 83 minutes. Um, but you realize, at least I did, um, watching this one, that they're kind of just giving you some more time with the characters because they know it's all coming to an end. Um, doing simple things, not just fucking fighting and shit like that. And it's also another continuation, just like every one since the first one, where uh, Daigoro, uh, the son, uh, is, you know, continuing his growth into a person through this. And, you know, and you kind of realize, too, and with this one, that in a way, and there are going to be some spoilers here because we do have to talk about this stuff. But as we say, it's from 74. Yeah, it's from 1974, guys. Um <laughs> But, like, you've already been, you're kind of given the impression that, like, as far as Agami Ito, like, he's already died. Like, he might be fighting the fights and, you know, trying to take care of his son and everything. But, like, his soul is practically dead at this point. Um, Even though, the you know, the heart of the samurai never dies kind of a thing. Um, It's very subdued and sad in a way. Um it's not really tragic or anything like that. You they, they do try and scare you a couple times, but at this point you kind of got to know that like they're not going to die. You know what I mean? It's just there's no conceivable like they've already gone this far and frankly this is kind of the disappointing part of the movie for me is that the foes in this one don't stack up very well. They're cool in the snow scenes at the end. But, like, everybody he faces along the way in this movie is kind of like, you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, they they were cool characters. But, like you said, they just didn't stack up as far as being a threat. Like, you know, it goes to the the leader of the Yagu. He goes to get the the son, his bastard son. Because Ito killed all his sons and and daughter. So, he's the last heir. And he was the one that he had with his mistress and he like raised himself in the mountains. You know, he was banished and all that. So that was, that was cool, you know, but, but yeah, as far as being a threat goes, I mean, he did the thing that was a cool scene, you know, just to start talking about some of my highlights he had where he tracks down Ito 
and he gives them that ultimatum. Like he tells them how they're putting out word throughout the entire land that he's the the number one threat, you know? So like all the other leaders and shoguns are going to be after him and everything. So he said, I will do you one favor. I'll give you my boat. And if you accept that, just know that I'll, you know, basically I'll give you a head start, but then I have to come at you too. Once they give the official message out and everything. Yep. And, and Ito sees right through him, you know, because he he know, he's like, you, you you wouldn't have made it up here as a samurai the way you made it up here. So he yep. called him out right away. And he's like, that's impressive that you saw through me. And he he takes his mask off and unveils himself and stuff. But yeah, that was one of my first standout scenes. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. Like at this point, as opposed to like the other movies where they're kind of like, People have been warned about him, or they kind of heard the legend. Like at this point, everybody knows that Agami Ito is no joke. They got to like kind of approach him differently and try and do like coming at him headstrong. Like, let's just send all the troops in, or just going to get all the troops killed. Um, So, like, everybody at this point is trying to approach him with with kid gloves, so to speak. Um, And and the the only thing that, and this is one of the bad things I could say about this movie. you're kind of confused about Ito's motivations at this point. Like all the other movies, it's pretty abundantly clear what's going on and what's driving him. This one, it's like a little bit more murky, um, which isn't the biggest deal, but you think something like a series like this with so much fucking philosophy behind it would have had something, you know, even if it's just for his son to continue on, but like they didn't even really get into that a whole lot. Until like a scene towards the end where you think his son's potentially dead. Especially regarding that this is the climax. The the six, exactly. six of six film. Like that's, I, I mentioned to you off air, just a little, we did talk about this, that I, I it definitely wasn't exactly what I was expecting. But yep. these are also good in their own ways that didn't deter anything or how I felt about the series at all. And, and we'll get into the climax and how everything wraps up. However, it, it wasn't, what I was expecting the the sixth and final film what was exactly going to be, you know, make up, you know? Yeah. I mean, you do the, with the way that this one kind of unfolds, you do kind of expect the finale to be like grandiose as fuck. You know what I mean? Like he kills 700 fucking people and you know, that he, he grabs his son and carries him out of the fucking bloody war, like that kind of shit. Uh, but that's not exactly how they go. Uh, you do get that one really fucking awesome scene whenever he's getting chased by all these fucking ninjas on skis at the end. And like they show him sword fighting essentially. And then everything just comes to a fucking stopping halt. And he's just standing in the middle of like a shitload of dead ninjas in the snow. Yeah, I, I, so I actually like, counted them on the wide shot. There was over 30. I think there was like 30. Really? Yeah. That's cool. That's cool as shit that you did that. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. But like, yeah, they're just like, and it's it's such a cool visual because it's just bodies and blood everywhere in the super white snow with him just standing above all of them. Um, and that to me is probably the last really, really cool shot you get of the movie in the series. Um, it, it is kind of anticlimactic to a way, you know what I mean? Cause it's, you don't feel like it, there's a, a certifiable challenge. He doesn't necessarily defeat the evil really either. It's yeah, kind of like leave a it open fight. Ended. Yeah. They, it's like a fight for another day. It's, it's, you know, it comes out of a manga, but. 
which is very similar to comics. And that's a total comic book thing to do is to leave it open. But it's just been kind of unfortunate that up to this point, nobody has made another film. You know what I mean? That is specifically tied to the series. There's been like unauthorized stuff, but not an actual Toho seventh film. Yeah, we we um, no closure. No. And I mean, and we talked about this off air too. I understand in certain folklore and stuff like that, it's very difficult to give that kind of closure. And I kind of, you know, brought it up to the point of being like, you know, hey, you're not going to get closure with Superman either. It's just one of those things. Like, it's a very difficult character to do that with, uh, especially with the sun and everything else, too. So, um, but still, nonetheless, really, really cool movie. Um, I definitely liked it. It's probably the second worst one in the series to me, but I actually uh, enjoyed the movie for what it was, and I still had a really, really good time with it overall. Yeah, there's there's always so many good highlights. You know, there there was the part where, you know, I was mentioning, you know, before he goes after the bastard son, the the last child of his other than the bastard was was his daughter and she was like the top assassin, you know, going pretty much so to speak and had that trick with the daggers and she would always do this trick where she would you know, basically throw these guys off with throwing these daggers at them and the, the one dagger she would throw in the air it would like land on their head. <laughs> you would just see the dagger go in the top of their head and then the blood pour. And of course the confrontation with Lone Wolf, he saw through her her dagger trick, you know, her dad dagger kind of magic trick, you know, and was able to take her out. Uh, but that was all a cool thing. That was like in that field and stuff. So, and, that, and that's yeah. the other thing, you know, br- bringing that up, hey, I just got to mention still the atmosphere, cinematography, the look of the film and everything, you know, still went right with kind of the visual poetry, if you will, of the series. It, that still went right hand in hand with uh, the other entries. Uh, so that worked out. And, and like we've been mentioning, the whole climax takes place on, you know, basically a, a, a mountainside, you know, ski slope with, with all the guys on skis, like you were saying. And of course, the baby carts on skis as well. So uh, Ito's going you down know, the hill with, with the sun and everything with the guys next to him. And, and that, that was pretty cool. The one thing that it, that's kind of a complaint that I've had about this one. And it reminded me rewatching it again. Um, it was cool how through the series they've introduced, you know, firepower and guns. And in this one, I kind of felt like they overdid it. There's like more of that than there is sword play to a degree. And that was kind of disappointing to me, considering that this is a fucking samurai series. Um, but they did manage though to do some cool shit with it, even when they busted out the baby cart machine guns, where he's just <laughs> literally a- lopping dudes off a mountaintop, like that are coming at him on skis. Like it's, it's pretty fucking funny, nonetheless. There too. was there was the other part they used the a gimmick from one of the past films, the the one that we thought was really cool with the uh the three assassins that each had like the the gimmicks, like they had the Wolverine yep. claws and they were sticking them in the sand of the guys that were in there because they knew they were there. And he shoots the baby cart guns at these walls and the walls start bleeding. And all these yep. dudes that were hiding to try to jump out and uh, ransack them just started falling out <laughs> of the side of the wall. That was that was cool with the gun. But I, I, I get what you're saying with, with like the sword play because uh, that was the thing. There was definitely a lot of slower parts in this one too. Uh, and, and they kind of got away with, I mean, there's, there's aspects of it that bring it back, but they kind of got away with the uh, father-son bond that we've been talking about. It wasn't as well, dude, prominent really until like the end and everything. 
yet the one thing about this movie too is and i, I it kind of feels like a misstep it doesn't ruin the movie but it's it's definitely in my opinion a misstep and that is this movie is probably the darkest entry into the series and they they completely deviate from any type of humor like we've seen in the previous Good five point. movies like there's always little pieces of humor stuff with his son and things like that they don't even attempt that shit in this one uh which is kind of weird because i remember thinking the first time i saw this um with that darker tone like throughout the movie i'm like someone's gonna die and like and they don't and i'm like well that kind of feels like a waste then you know like make a movie so dark and then finish it that way right. so uh, but I don't know. I mean, I still think that this is uh, a decent way of finishing off the series. It's not perfect by any stretch of the means, but uh, nonetheless, it's still a pretty good movie overall. And, and I definitely enjoyed this one. Uh, anything else you'd like to add for this one, the Jay? I just got to say, I, like I said, I think, and I mentioned this a lot. I think my expectations were too high for my personal perspective as well, just because I well, the five this. Mo- five- Five movies before that are all fucking pretty fantastic. Yeah, so it, it did have a lot to live up to. And I, like you said, at the bottom, you know, end of the day, I still enjoyed it. It's not like they completely flubbed the, the climax or anything. There's always different ways you can go creatively, but I, I liked it. I mean, it was, you know, really cool to, to have him kill 30 some dudes. Cause that, that's one thing I was thinking in this. And I know people have used the, the reference to Rambo before, but like everybody will bring up, you know, as big horror fans, like, you know, your Jason's and Freddy's and, and Michael Myers and how many people they kill. And I'm like, dude, Rambo and Lone Wolf and Cub probably have the the top kill counts. <laughs> you oh, know, dude, like, and, you add and, them up. You're right. And the, you actually reminded me of something that I, I forgot to bring up on here. But uh, the director, uh, Yoshiyuki Kuroda, um, has a pretty, not super extensive, but a fairly extensive uh history in in japanese horror so like you can kind of see that influence on the movie just with it being darker and things like that he also made a a really cool movie uh it's called the invisible swordsman um that i really like and i haven't seen that in a really long time but uh it's kind of an odd choice for him to do something like this but i don't think like put it this way, I don't think any of the shortcomings of the movie have to do with it visually. I thought no. the movie looked great. Yeah, the film looked great, and, and this also, speaking of kills, and, and I'm glad you brought that up. Just like ha- the dire- director having some horror experience, like kept my thoughts there. Best kill maybe in the series, and that's saying a lot. When they're on the mountainside, and that dude jumps at him and he cuts him in half, and you just see his the bottom half of his torso. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was some Mortal like, Kombat shit before dude, Mortal Kombat. That's another thing, too, that kind of reminds me of that earlier scene uh, in the series, wherever that ninja, like that, you know, the the woman's like, jump to the garden. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're just lopping his body parts. That was was definitely another highlight. They don't overdo that. So, like, when they do it, it, it's impactful. You're you're absolutely right about that kill in this one, too, because it's like, I was, that's what I thought of in my mind. And I'm like, let's see if that's the one that he says. And that's it. It's the exact one you went for. <laughs> yeah, and it's, that, and it's really quick out. and it's really simple, but like that visual of just like in the snow, that's what I was going to say. Snow, the snow with like the blood. Snow. That's what, that's what oh. played. I think that's what they were going for is like, we're going to end this, you know, with all the blood we have in, in a snow environment, like to really dude, it would be, you know what I mean? Like if you're, if you were making a horror movie or any kind of a violent, gory movie at all, and you were like, fuck, we need to find a good environment for like this bloody scene. And it's like the snow. Yeah, it it's perfect. Yeah. yeah, it's 
it's the old wrestling thing. Like yeah, Jim Cornette used to always say this. Like if you knew you were getting color, which means you were going to bleed, what color suit would you wear? White. Exactly. Because it's going to look fucking like insane. Yeah. Like, it stands out. So, but yeah, that's that. That's the the idea. So uh, they were able to pull a lot of that stuff off. So as we do here on the J, uh, on the show, the J, five-star rating scale, what are you giving White Heaven and Hell? I'm going to stick with a solid three and a half for White Heaven and Hell. Agreed. That's what I would give it to. So that is the conclusion here to the Lone Wolf and Cub series. Um, so, I, you know, I'm checking back in on you. I did this about halfway through the J. So, like, this series, man, like, what what did you think? Did it Did it surpass your expectations? Did it live up to them? Did it fall short? How did you feel about sitting through all these movies here? It did, honestly. Hey, it surpassed my expectations. And I expected a lot. But, you know, because I've, again, with being a Kurosawa fan, and I said I kept comparing it just for my other samurai watching, classic samurai kind of stuff, you know, with Seven Samurai and and Kurosawa films. So these were a lot different in the way that, like like we first started mentioning, they have that exploitive kind of feel to them. And and again, being a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino, I could see why he was so influenced and why he wanted to do Kill Bill, you know, and have have his take and an homage to to Lone Wolf and Cub. So so yeah, I, I love this. This is uh going right in there with so many of my favorite series, man. I, I was mentioning I'm definitely gonna uh, give it some time, but I'll relive this again. And and while we're at it. Because we were telling everybody, if you're interested in this series, if you're listening and haven't seen it yet, have some extra cash. I highly recommend the Lone Wolf and Cub set from Criterion. Uh, that's what we use yep. to do our, our Month of the Samurai. And some of the things that, that we weren't able to get to, uh, both of us have talked about this and, and we've both seen it. It's been some time for me. I'm definitely going to pop this in. I, w- I was telling you, hey, Ed, that the fact that I, I was trying to squeeze it in, but I'm like, I'm actually glad I didn't get it in. And that was Shogun Assassin. Uh, again, we've talked about it, but just if if you missed it, if you're listening, Shogun Assassin Assassin is just basically a mismatch that was made for grindhouse theaters and drive-ins of the entire six Lone Wolf and Cub films. Uh, but it's it's a really cool version of it to to see it like in that kind of format with everything kind of mismatched together, all all six of the movies, you know, still with the the soundtrack and everything, and, and that might even be more palpable. For, for certain film goers, you know, just to see the the kind of mismatch version of it as opposed to watching all six films. And absolutely. And I think that a lot of people out there who might not be familiar with these, but are familiar example uh, is with the, the Jizza's Liquid Swords album. Uh, obviously, Jizza from the Wu-Tang Clan. If you guys are familiar with that album, you've already heard a lot of audio and stuff from Shogun Assassin. Um, because that's kind of like the concept album, the liquid swords, like built around that kind of stuff. So that's probably the most famous, uh, or the most commonplace type thing for people to, to notice this stuff from. Um, but yeah, Shogun Assassin is essentially a mixtape of the Lone Wolf and Cub movies. Uh, it's pretty quick and easy, but it's also like action packed because they put all the like best fights yeah, like, and shit together. Um, so that's pretty cool as well. Um, obviously these, this series is based off a Japanese manga, which is available. So if you guys do want to check that out, you could probably get copies of it on Amazon. It's been in print since the 1960s. Um, you know, there it's worth it too, because like, if you're like, you've, we've been kind of talking about this throughout, but like, if you're a fan of movies in general, um, you can watch these 
And like you'll start pick like this is shit that Tarantino did. This is stuff that like certain westerns did. This stuff is you know like they this series has influenced a lot of movies and not just shit within the genres. Like it goes outside of the genres. That's how well known these are. Like pretty well established directors and stuff are probably going to be familiar with the series and tend to put their own stamp on things and put them in their own movie. So. Um, you know, it's really an impressive series. It's it's a lot of fun. Uh, also, too, if you guys aren't big movie collectors or anything like that, the movies are available, too, on HBO Max. Um, I believe they're all on there at the moment. They were the last time I checked, which was, you know, about halfway through the month. So if you guys do have HBO Max, uh, you can check these out at no additional cost, obviously. And uh, highly worth it, man. I mean, I, there's not too many people out there uh, that I wouldn't recommend this to. I think a lot of people... Uh, would get some good out of it one way or another because there's just so many stories and different things going on here that I think it's enjoyable on a bunch of different levels where, you know, typical samurai flicks and kung fu stuff. And, and dude, like even like, you know, like you were saying, Kurosawa, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, but it's not exactly palatable to, you know, like a 17-year-old kid or something. Exactly. Like that. Yeah, these are definitely you know, more accessible. Seven Samurai is a four-hour movie, basically. <laughs> yeah. So... These yeah. are a lot easier to sit through and things like that. And it, it might be more accessible to a lot of people too. But uh, but that's not a, a discount of anything that these movies do. They're fucking fantastic. It's an absolutely great series. And the J, I, you know, we don't do this too much here on the podcast, but let's pat ourselves on the back for three consecutive years where I think we've done a really good job uh, with what we do in February. Like I said, the first year was uh, the month of the dragon with... Uh, Bruce Lee, and then we did the month of Melvin, all about Melvin Van Peebles. And the third year, we decided to do the year of the samurai, all about the Lone Wolf and Cub series. So I'd, I'd say we're we're three for three, man. We're batting a thousand so far. I agree. We'll keep it up the tradition into season four, and it's those deep dives. Hey Ed, it's the thousand leagues, the ten thousand leagues under the sea. We we deep dive into these special months and. I think it's so worth it because we pick things that that really deserve to be put into a spotlight and, and really, you know, multi-layered kind of subjects that we can really dig into, which is awesome. And speaking of which, to live uh, fact check on the show, hey, Ed, because I had mentioned uh, talking about Shogun Assassin that it was like the mismatch of all the Lone Wolf and Cub films, but it's actually a 1980 English dubbed re-edit of the first two Lone Wolf and Cub films. So I wanted to throw that out there. And, um, I thought there was more shit from the other ones in it, actually, but I guess not. Yeah, <laughs> and and so just to round out the Criterion Collection, uh, this is stuff that I'll be digging into uh, in the, the near future. But they have a new interview with the writer of the Lone Wolf and Cub manga series and screenwriter on five of the films. They have a 2005 documentary about the making of the series, an interview in which uh, the writer discusses and demonstrates the real, uh, I guess it's a, I'm sorry, it's a sword master demonstrates the real sword techniques that inspired the ones depicted in the manga and films. Uh, that That's really cool. Hey, Ed, we'll have to check oh, yeah, I'd out. like to see that. Yeah, yeah I didn't watch that. There's so an interview cool. with biographer Natsawa about Masimi, the director of four of the six films, a silent documentary from 1937, which is really cool about the making of samurai swords with an optional new ambient score by Ryan Francis. Trailers, and uh, as I'm sure you saw, Hey, Ed, which is a really cool part of this collection, uh, and specifically the Criterion set, a booklet featuring an essay and film synopsis by Japanese pop culture critic Patrick Macias. So, you know, you get a And I've read that. It's 
that's pretty good. Yeah. Like it's that's really good shit in there for sure. Awesome collection, um, awesome experience, yeah. and I'm I'm kind of tearing up. Hey Ed, I'm gonna miss the the guys, Lone Wolf and Cub, but it was a great journey here on the What's Real podcast, and it's fucking enlightening. It's an amazing film adventure, and like I said, it's gonna be in my rotation for being in every uh, so often. You know, every few years, I'll, I'll pop these in, no, no doubt. And dude, I don't know if you know this or realize this, right? But like, okay, we're three for three in February here on the podcast as far as doing these special months. And I don't know if people listening at home understand like how much pressure that like it. Thank God we don't have to do this until next February because it's not easy yeah, we want to do coming it right. up with these. Yep. And and another thing too, and I don't know if you've even realized this, but like when we do these, this is not influenced by anything else. There's not any other podcast talking about what we're talking about at the same time we're talking about it. We didn't just see it wasn't like a popular thing that like we just saw on Netflix and we're like, let's do that. And like this is totally us really trying to hit the, the, the drawing board and come up with something that we can sink our teeth into for an entire month where we feel it would be good podcasting for you guys, something that people would want to listen to and, and get enjoyment out of, but also while not picking things that everybody knows about and has already seen everything from, like we're trying to like toe that middle ground and it's very difficult. So I really do hope you guys enjoy this in February because we really do end up enjoying doing this, even though it can be difficult. Um, but it's, it's been a lot of fun and it's, it, you know, like I think I said this last year, whenever we did this, this is something that I look forward to, and it's one of my personally favorite things that we do all year long on the podcast with all our specials and segments and even the NFL and stuff like that. Like, I really love the month of February because of this specific thing that we do. I agree. Yeah, it's a great call. And kudos to you, Hey, for coming up with it. We throw ideas at each other, and that was your uh, your child, basically. And, uh, yeah, it's a great idea, and it will be interesting to see where we're at in 2024 season four of the what's world podcast and what we decide to choose and spend a month on. And, and, and like you said, I thought about this because that's definitely my philosophy with most things we talk about on the podcast. I want to be as, as prepared as possible, but this kind of correlates with, I've seen a lot of interviews recently with people from the cast of the last of us, the HBO max hit. And yeah. with it being based on a beloved video game series, they asked like, especially the leads, uh, you know, Jewel and Ellie are the characters and the actors, uh, both of them said that they didn't play the game or want to play the game to be influenced. And and that's kind of how, like you said, kind of we are as, as opposed to like listening to possibly other things out there and things like that, just to give our own just unadulterated, you know, untampered with take on these things to help us personally deep dive into these things. And and I agree with that philosophy because I think that's how it would be too. If, if I'm going to be an iconic character, I'm just going to want to do my own take on it. I'm not going to be one of like influenced by any other thing. You know, I want to kind of do my own take on it. So that's kind of the philosophy we have on breaking this stuff down. I feel. And it would be so much less interesting. I think too, like I couldn't get a month out of, other people's opinions you know what i mean like i would i need to develop yeah, you might even start to be able to do that subconsciously saying other people's opinions without even like stealing or meaning to you know it's just yeah, in your brain can, if you read it so it's like with stand-up comics like a lot of them don't want to see other people's acts because they don't want to get that in their head you know stuff like that yeah and i don't like contrary to popular belief i don't even listen to myself on the show very often um 
because I kind of know what I'm doing. Like, I'm not saying that I'm perfect, but like, I kind of know what I'm doing. And if I listen to the show, that's the kind of thing that like fucks with my confidence as far as doing the show. So I'd prefer not to listen to it unless I need to. Um, and I have a way of doing it where it doesn't annoy me as much. Yeah, that's kind of but, what I do because it, it actually helps me. But that's the thing. Everybody's different, especially with creative creative endeavors and art. You know, you just got to do what works for you. Yeah. And I, and that's another thing, too, about the month of February. I, I feel like the, whatever we choose to do the month for is just another way for us to creatively do things here on the podcast. And it's it's different and it's neat and it's it, it feels uniquely our thing. So I, I do enjoy that. And, and I've enjoyed it all three years immensely. So, like I said, it's one of my favorite things we do here on the show. Yeah, it's definitely tough to say goodbye to the month of the samurai. Hey, yeah, but we move forward on the journey of the What's Real podcast, just like our boy Ito. Absolutely. So that reminds me, as a programming note, uh, this is kind of what we're going to be doing here for the month of March because we don't have any specific thing. But it's uh, it's March Madness coming up, so it's movie March Madness, so to speak, here for us. Uh, we're bringing back all of our segments that we do. Uh, we're going to do three weeks in a row. We're going to do double features every week. So that means Thursday Night Prime, we're going to see coming back. Uh, Fridays at Midnight's coming back. And I guess we can announce it right now. Next week on the show, for the first week of March, we're doing a double dose of the movies that made us. Me and the Jay both going to have a choice there. And uh, we have something special planned, too, for the end of the month. We'll get into that as the weeks go on as well uh, for what we'll do the final week. But uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be uh, all different types of movies, too, especially from what we've been doing for the month of the Samurai. So, uh, you know, that's what we're doing moving forward. So join us next week for a double dose of the movies that made us. So we are going to take a quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, we have a boatload of wrestling for you. We're going to talk Elimination Chamber 2023, WWE biography on the NWO, and the newest WWE rivals on Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. So stay tuned. We'll be back with all that and much more right here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Herman James with the What's Real Podcast. Finally giving me something to do here. It's been a while since I talked to you guys, but I'm actually helping them out doing an advertisement for advertisers. That's right. If you would like to advertise here on the What's Real Podcast and join the team, just shoot us an email today. We got cheap, easy, and affordable rates, and we can hook you up with some kick-ass advertisements. Just hit us up at Gmail. It's at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. That's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Join the team with me, my brother Timothy James, the wizard behind the boards, Cam, the J, and Hey Ed. It's the What's Real team for some advertisers. Hit us up, whatsrealpod at gmail.com today. Maybe I'm just paranoid. Oh, maybe I'm just living a lie. Can't stop this screaming voice. Oh, maybe I'm just sick inside. And we're back, and it is time to get into some wrestling. First up, the WWE Elimination Chamber. This was live February 18th from Montreal, Quebec, Canada at the Bell Center. And uh, we didn't have the biggest card, only five matches. That's generally how it works during the Elimination Chamber. So to start it off, we had the Women's Elimination Chamber match uh, where Asuka defeated Carmella, Liv Morgan, Natalia, Nikki Cross, and Raquel Rodriguez in 19 minutes and 30 seconds. Not bad, kind of a fun match, wasn't anything blow away. Um, we all kind of said that like Oscar was probably going to win beforehand. That is who won. I'm not mad at that at all. Uh, I think her and Bianca Belair at WrestleMania is going to be pretty good. Um, but you know, not a bad way to start out the show for sure. I, I wouldn't complain there. 
No, it's very, very entertaining. I enjoyed it. Some good spots. Uh, through my notes, there was the one with Nikki Cross with being back to, I mean, that poor girl can't find a, a solid gimmick. Uh, this whole craze, you know, she, I'm just crazy again kind of thing after the superhero thing was was terrible. But she did do a uh, high cross body off of the pod. Yep. So I'll give, you know, give credit there. I wanted to shout that out. Some some pretty good uh, back and forth. Like Liv's a, a workhorse now. I like watching her evolution. Like she's been doing pretty good. She's super hot to the J. I think she's different and did some good stuff. Raquel, I don't know if she really is doing what she needs to do coming up from NXT on the main roster. Yeah, I kind of feel the same. Yeah, way. this was another just, match where she did she did all right, but you know she just you know she was looking like a beast in NXT, and that's what happens to a lot of talent. You know, it's they get lost in translation coming to the big roster. It's it's a tough kind of thing to to get up there dude, and make an impact. I think you can kind of say the same thing from Carmella. Like she's had a few hot periods. But yeah, like she's, she's kind of always kind of like, yeah, she's always trying to like find her groove again. And yeah, and the sad thing is the last few times she tried to do that, she would end up getting hurt. So it's like, and then she's gone again. So, right. uh, so I think they made the right choice here for Oscar to win too, especially going to mania. You're going to want to have a match that's, you know, could at least oh, stand dude, up on paper. Yeah, It's fresh. It's, it's should be an amazing match. I mean, Bianca and Oscar. Yeah, two of the best women they have, in my opinion. So I'm I'm not going to complain there. So, but uh, but yeah, not a bad way to start the show for sure. Uh, next up, this is kind of perplexing. Uh, we saw Bobby Lashley defeat Brock Lesnar by DQ in about four minutes and forty five seconds. Um, I'm assuming they're going to do a rematch of sorts at Mania. Um, otherwise, this that's, is completely fucking pointless. That's what's weird. I was thinking that too, but then Bray Wyatt called out Brock. But well, they're doing this thing now where it's like the Brock challenge. Now, apparently he's out on that from what I understand. So next week on Raw, they're doing Brock versus Omos. Yeah, so I I'm see assuming that. he's going to be on Raw. Uh, dude, okay, so I'm assuming they want to raise their ratings a bit uh, for Raw going into Mania for some reason. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because I didn't watch a lot of Raw last night, but I did have it on for a little bit. And guess who actually had a match last night on raw who's that edge oh that's right he, he faced uh theory for the u.s i yep. didn't get to that yet it, i do want to watch that pretty good match by the way yeah, i didn't figure. watch the whole show but that, that match was pretty good um but yeah i mean they're trying to put bigger names on raw and obviously i think that's why they're doing this with the challenge series but um but i'll be honest with you i mean i don't think it's going to be worth a shit as far as being a match goes but i am interested just to see how lesnar handles somebody like almost who's yeah yeah, yeah who's almost eight feet tall that's the thing going back to to lashley and brock here was you know it's another one now we're, we're looking forward to seeing how they were going to match up because they took a long time to get to this and we were hoping it was like not one of those WWE situations where they pulled the trigger way too late. You know, like these guys have been in the WWE for so long, especially going back to Lashley's run before he left for, for years and then came back and everything. There was plenty of chances, but they never did it. And now to this point, they had a match last year that was pretty good. And then they wrestled at crown jewel again, which was like, so, so, and now they're doing this one. So if they are carrying it on to mania, I'm feeling they should be doing some sort of a gimmick, you know, some sort of 
falls count anywhere or last man standing. I mean, something. Uh, but we'll, we'll see where they go as far as that goes. But my, my point is, it was like exactly what this match is. Like when Brock wrestles Goldberg and stuff, it's just like yep. spear, F5, F5, near fall, spear. Lashley goes for the hurt lock. You know, it's like once you see enough of that, you're just numb to it. And yeah, I don't want to see Brock really much of an effect. Yeah, I don't want to see Brock becoming that kind of guy because he is an intangible wrestler. Like he does like yeah, he shit can go out of nowhere. And and to have these kind of you know routine kind of uh setups in his matches is not like what I like. But but yeah, other than that, it, it did what it did. It's you know, hopefully building up what they're doing storyline wise. And at least they did save it a little bit with the DQ finish for for after the match, and that brought the crowd back into it too. Uh, you know, because other than that, I think that they were going to get booed, you know, <laughs> like for yeah, a four would, minute DQ, you know, but in, uh, a mat, in a match that I think like us, a lot of people were looking forward yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, really. Like you that. like to see what these guys can do, especially like starting to get used to each other. You know, you think the third time on a big stage, they could do some shit instead of a four, three, you know, four and a half minute DQ. But, uh, and, and this leaves, uh, hey, Ed, because I didn't know if you're going to mention it, because uh, this was a big thing from back in the day, but the last time that WrestleMania, was in Los Angeles. It was WrestleMania. Uh, what was it? Twenty one, and they did all the Hollywood vignettes, and they brought those back. And the first one aired on Elimination Chamber after this match, and that was uh, Seth Rollins playing like the Arthur Fleck version of the Joker, and then Becky Lynch shows up as Bat the Man <laughs> with the raspy voice. So they're starting those. So it's going to be interesting to see who they pick to put into what Hollywood vignettes uh, moving forward. Cause I'm sure they'll be doing that uh, as the road to WrestleMania continues for where we're at as we, as we speak. Absolutely. Uh, next up, we had a mixed tag match. Uh, we saw edge and Beth Phoenix defeat the judgment day team of Finn Balor and Rhea Ripley by pinfall at 13 minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, whatever. It kind of was what I expected. Nothing great here. Uh, just kind of, like a, a pretty major TV match, I guess. It was good. Kind of the best yeah, way I would explain it. It was fun. I liked it. As we always state, it didn't, uh, you know, put past its welcome. It was uh, shy of fifteen minutes, so it uh, wasn't too long or anything. And, and I was entertained by it. it. Like you said, it was pretty much what I would have thought it would would be. Yeah, middle of the card type thing for sure. Uh, next up, we had the men's elimination chamber for the WWE United States Championship. And in 31 minutes and 30 seconds, we saw Austin Theory defeat Bronson Reed, Damian Priest, Johnny Gargano, Montez Ford, and Seth freaking Rollins. This match was really good. Really good. Yeah, I, I was blown away by this. Like, I, I knew it was going to be hot, but man, I was really into this match. Um, and, and my fault, hey, Ed, I'm in the zone of the the what's real podcast. I don't know if you had mentioned at the outset, we we actually watched this one together. Like like you've been mentioning yeah. on the show, we've been getting together a lot. Uh, so we were watching this one at the, uh, the J compound. Uh, but yeah, this was a, a really fun uh, match to watch with you guys. Cause it was just entertaining, just tons of big spots. Montez Ford. We always knew he was a star. This was his moment. You know, it's not near what's going to be his biggest moment to really put him over, but this is the start of it. You know what I mean? He's kind of the MVP yeah. here. He, he even like, I, I love this. I, I was catching this online where they do a spot where Montez Ford ends up getting hurt. Like this goes towards the end of the match. We could come back with some, some other highlights, uh, you know, whatever you want to talk about, Hey Ed, but just while I'm thinking about it and he was selling the injury so good that people online were like speculating about it. And I saw like one of the, 
more top tier, as we put in quotes, pro wrestling journalist was like, no, Montez Ford, this was just a sell to set up the end and the finish. He's fine. And I'm like, that's some good selling, especially modern wrestling to, to get people. You know, that's always one of those things to point out. I think that dude has everything. He has everything, man. He's good. Yeah, they'd be fools to not immediately come. Oh, Tri- Trips was talking him. about him in the the post chamber press conference that they do now, and 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 said exactly what I just said. He said Montez Ford is, is a star. Yeah, and they all did a really good job too. Even Bronson Reed, who I've not been he really big on lately, um, dude. I think say what you want about him as a human being. I, that's not what I'm talking about here. But like Austin Theory is very good. Yeah, like really good. He's much on, better. He's than been I growing on me, and yeah, he's uh, he's to a point now where he's up there. It's like the only person I don't really like in this match is Damian Priest, and he did fine. You know what I mean? It's just is what it is with him. But like Rollins has been killing it. Uh, Johnny Wrestling's always good. No pro, no beef. Yeah, I had that me. that one where he hit the Rana on Seth. Off the oh yeah, that was great. That was yeah, that was pretty crazy. So they, you know, they definitely. This is exactly what I've kind of expected this match to be. It probably even exceeded my expectations a little bit too. So uh, you know, I was really happy to see that. And obviously, Theory being the United States champion again is probably a good thing. Yeah, and it, it even had a, a really cool surprise on top of everything else with the, the interference from Logan Paul, oh, yeah. and that set up the. Yep. This the WrestleMania match with with Seth, which should be pretty good with those two. Uh, match it up very well like the same builds uh you know i think logan's really good as a raw kind of wrestler right now um you know just athletic and and he's you know being put in the right positions but i think seth can really bring something out of him at wrestlemania so i'm very interested in what they do i gotta say this too man early on here this is the first mania we're seeing where vince isn't doing the booking and I don't know everything that they're doing yet, but from what I see already, the matchups are like the quality match. Like there's going to be some really good matches at WrestleMania this year, I think. And it's, it's going to be, like it. I, I think it's going to be kind of a departure because I think that's more trips strong suit. So like you might see like a really wrestling heavy WrestleMania and it's like, dude, on paper, this is one of the better ones we've ever seen. Yep. And that's good for us. I hope. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, the main event for the undisputed WWE Universal Championship saw Roman Reigns defeat Sami Zayn by pinfall in 32 minutes and 20 seconds in a match that's got to be up there with the best matches of the year. This was absolutely fantastic. This this is one of those stars align scenarios, and we talked about that in our preview. Hey, Ed, it's just the fact that Sami Zayn was in his hometown of Montreal the the length of this build up the way they've been doing it give WWE credit when it's due cuz they did great storytelling with the bloodline like everybody's talking about that and it all led to this moment and we all know Sammy can go in the ring we know where Roman is right now and everything came together and this was what we hoped for and more it really was we were going nuts for this match yeah really good uh dude I was really really proud of Sammy uh he put on such a really good performance. And, dude, I, we've said this. I, I feel like we've been saying this here on the podcast for years now. And I know that he's he's the dude and everything else. But, like, dude, Roman is fucking fantastic. He's really good uh, working in the character that he's in. Um, it, it's just really impressive, the, the, you know, to be this many days into the reign that he's into. And it's just, you know, and, and he's, dude, no, I don't think – when this would have started, if you told me one of the best feuds Roman was going to have is going to be with Sami Zayn, I would have laughed at you without question. And I, we always liked Sami, 
but he was just like dude the way was he last year dude last year he was his wrestlemania match was with the fucking jackass guys and he knocked that out of the park and look how far he's come since then you exactly. know what i mean he's He's really done a good job Did, for himself. So, you know, I got to say, like, that that main event was great. It also shows you, too, man, how, how much better a wrestling match is when there's even a remote modicum of fucking emotion involved in the storyline. Exactly. It's so important. And it's so underutilized in today's wrestling. And that kind of bums me out because, like, we know that. We've known that for years. But, like, man, when you see it in action, it's so fucking good. And it's like, why can't shit just be like this? <laughs> yeah. I, I guess it's easier said than done, hey, Ed. But did you happen to catch with Triple H, uh, who he compared Sammy to, which I thought was kind of unique? I wanted to get your take on that. I think so, but I'm I'm drawing a blank. He said he reminds him of, of Mick Foley in, in a different yeah, way. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I get that. Because he's like the everyman that kind of connects exactly. with the audience. It's his connection to the audience, yep. It shows you, man. Like we remember, we've always kind of said this. Like when it comes to wrestling, there's room for everybody. Like there's room for the athletic guys, and there's room for the fat guys, and there's room for the big hoss guys, and there's room for the high flyers and the masked guys and all that stuff. Like there is a very defined place in wrestling for the everyman. Like that is a very good pocket if you have a guy that fits into that pocket like you'd be a fucking fool not to push him because crowds latch onto that shit if somebody's likable that matters and not like a you know like pretty boy likable like he's like the guy you want to have a beer with likable that matters man so it's nice to kind of because like we really haven't seen that that put it this way vince was never enamored with that type of character the only time he really pushed anything like that really was foley so, like, this is probably the first iteration of a guy getting pushed that way in the WWE since Mick Foley. Yeah, I could see that. And I, I wanted to get your take take on this, Hey, because there was some interesting post-match stuff that, that went on okay. you know, with the whole storyline. So, of course, Roman and Jimmy started their beatdown on Sammy, and that brings out Kevin Owens, you know, who got a huge pop. And, after and, the match, by yeah, the way. Yeah, this is all after the match. And Paul Heyman got hit with a stunner with a great sell. <laughs> Heyman's goofy ass being involved. And they went into the whole thing. Sammy ends up hitting Roman with a huluva kick and walked away, and they're staring each other down. And here's the thing, because we were talking about this uh, at the house, at my house when, when this was wrapping up, about how it didn't really make sense that KO didn't help Sammy during the match. Like, why would they have him come out? And I saw a lot of people saying, well, because they were done being friends, and KO still needed to get revenge on the Usos. So when things were being taken too far, he came down for his revenge. So I wanted to get your take on on that whole thing. And maybe we're, we're thinking the build to Mania is going to go because that's a, another thing of contention right now is like, where does this leave Cody Rhodes? Like he's still killing it. He's still he's highly popular. He's going to get the shot. Well, he's going to get the Mania. shot. But is Sammy going to be involved? Or are they going to do a thing where Sammy and KO – you know, they, they patch their differences and they go in a tag match against the Usos. Well, dude, there's something else at play here that I don't know if you saw. I missed it watching the pay-per-view, but I seen somebody bring it up on Twitter with a video. So there's a part where Kevin Owens comes out during the match, which you mentioned. And did you hear what Paul Heyman said I probably during this? So this is really cool. This is like subtle storytelling shit. So they showed Heyman to Kevin Owens. And he's like, you were always my favorite. It was never about Roman. I don't, I wish I was with you. Like, I don't like kind of doing that shit. And it's like, nobody heard him say it. 
except for Solo Sokoa. Uh, so they're kind of like, are they planning? And if uh, I watched Raw last night and I did see uh, there was a segment that they did, that they did with Heyman and Sammy, or Heyman and Cody. And uh, Heyman took like this route where he's like, you know, Cody, you say you want to be, you know, the WWE champion. He's like, but I don't think you're, you understand what that means. He's like, now he's like, now Roman Reigns can do as he wants because he has the wise man to take care of these things for him. But he's like, but if you, he's like, let's say you would beat him for the championship. You won't, but let's say that you do. He's like, so let's say 200 years or 200 days a year, you're on the road defending your title. And then there's another 100 days where you're doing promotion and this and that and all this other stuff. And then there's 20 more days and then you got to do all this stuff. Is that the kind of life you want to lead? So like him saying that alone added into what I just told you from the match, like they're starting to yeah, plant seeds. seeds being 100%. That, but here's the thing. We've seen this in the past with Heyman. If you remember, Heyman was with Brock Lesnar. And then remember when Heyman just turned on Brock and went with Big Show when they did like the title change right. years ago? And he's done, he did the same thing with Roman. He went from Brock to Roman. Who's he going to go with now? Is it going to be Sammy? Is it going to be Cody? Is it going to be anybody? Does he stay with Roman? Does Roman not want him anymore? Like, that's. That's going to be another wedge that they stick into the into the storyline. So, if they end up doing something like a three way or something like that at Mania, it's a lot of it's going to have to do with like well, what's Heyman going to do. Yeah, that's so a great point. and such a th- another big factor involved in all of this. And I was talking to our mutual friend Dave asked about this. Is like where is Roman in real life is a big thing, you know, because he has been on such a tear. And we mentioned, dude, it's not like he's abundantly in match after match, but he's had a ton of matches. He's on tons of SmackDowns. There's been periods there that that he wasn't. They kept him off TV for certain things. But my point is, he's been on a whatever it's been, 900-someday run, whatever the hell. It's like he might just be like, okay, I'm trying to do some different things for a little bit, start setting up. You know, like like his cousin The Rock, you know, like post wrestling stuff, plant those seeds for himself, spend some time with his family. Who knows? But it's like if Roman's going to go away from a while, that's going to, you know, obviously influence the booking for Mania a lot, too. So and we'll never know that, you know, but it's just a cool thing to think about. because That's that's just well, yet another uh, factor with all this. There is one thing here, though, and I think people have kind of deviated away from it. But there's one thing here now that I think we can absolutely positively confirm at this point. There is not going to be any rock at WrestleMania. No, 100%. Yeah, I don't see that happening under any capacity. That ship is sailing. Unless the only thing would be if he, and this this is like, I'd say 5% possibility. He uh, he does a a rock at Mania. To yeah. set up next you year like re- he did with Cena. Before. Yeah. You, you very well could be on to something with that. But I, I, I'll i be honest with you. If we don't see something like that or a video or anything specifically from him, it, he's done. He's not even coming back next year. I think it's a wrap because the further out they go, the more difficult it's going to be. And plus, like, the dude's he just launched the XFL this past weekend. And, she, like, he has plenty of other stuff to do. And I don't think that, like, training for WrestleMania is really in the cards for him right yeah, now. Yeah, because both, both Roman Reigns and Triple H talked pretty candidly about that in the past few months that I caught. 
And Roman Reigns, uh, he he actually said this on Jimmy Fallon, and it was a great Seen point. That. Yeah, that that this isn't something you could just come and do. Like you have to be hardened, and, and like Jimmy Fallon didn't even get it. I think that was like sincere. He's like, "What do you mean? It's the Rock. He's like the the most perfect built dude. You know, one of which on the planet." And he's like, "Yeah, his conditioning's there, his diet's there. He has two of the three pieces, dude, but he doesn't he have even, the ring." He even said something along the lines of like, "Yeah, he he's." He's great in bodybuilding, but that's not the same thing as wrestling. Yeah, he's going to have the ring rust. And then Triple H had said the door's always open for Dwayne. Like, this is his home. He knows that. However, scheduling is is just huge. He's like, this guy is so busy. And like you just mentioned, hey, Eddie, just uh, launched the XFL. He was, like, going to at least more than one game. So he's like flying in a private private jet from like Houston to Alabama and whatever the hell he's doing. I mean, you're talking to probably literally the busiest man on the planet. So there's a lot of factors that are going to keep him away from, from wrestling. However, I don't feel like he had an official retirement. He's not in the hall of fame yet. So, you know, we'll, we'll see with the rock, you know, he's getting older, but dude, still the rock, he? he's been around for so long, but he's only what, like 40, Eight ish. He's in the dude. He's in the Hall of Fame. The Rock. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's in the Hall of Fame. Well, I think he's been well, in for a while. It, we're gonna use our sponsor, the Interwebs. Hey Ed. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's in because that's the year they put in the Wild Samoans and shit. No, like, the Rock is yet to be inducted in the Hall of Fame. I th- he's inducted really? people, but he's not in the Hall of Fame. Okay. Okay. So, I swear, I thought he was in. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's yeah, interesting. That's probably coming speculation in. abound. Absolutely. So that was our breakdown of the Elimination Chamber. The J, we do the grades here, the letter grades for this. What are you giving Elimination Chamber 23? Solid B plus, man. There wasn't anything really that bad on the card. Uh, you know, the schmas between Lesnar and, and Lashley uh, being the only blemish to me. Solid B plus. Yeah. No, I agree. B plus is a pretty good grade for it. That's what I'm going to go with as well. Um, so that was Elimination Chamber. Now let's talk a little bit about the new AD shows that are back uh, for the second season here for WWE. Third. Uh, or third season, I'm sorry. Uh, and the first uh, episode of the show was all about the New World Order, specifically Annie's biography. Um, I was not looking forward to this at all. Um, we've talked about this kind of stuff time and time again, where it just, it's like rehashing of the same shit repeatedly. Um and I, on top of it, like my heart sunk when I saw that this thing was two hours, and I'm like, oh, "Fuck, really?" And on top of it, the the recent passing of Scott Hall. I yes. was thinking that too. I'm like, "Shit, this is like the first thing they're doing without Scott Hall around," which Kevin Nash talked about a bit. Yep, and I got to admit, this was pretty good. I, I it felt like a fresh presentation of the stuff. Exactly, uh, dude. Um, I felt like they did, did kind you, of like a E6 or uh, like thirty for thirty yes. vibe. Yeah, you know, on this yep. one. It, dude, a hundred percent. And the the one thing, and this is weird because I don't like them at all. But the one thing that I did like about this is they kind of just let Bischoff take the lead on, yeah, because he was you know the the point man for all. This I like shit. that because we heard from everybody and, else. Like we've heard from him, but yeah, with him taking the lead, that's a great point. And we've heard what the WWE thinks. Oh, Bischoff fucked this up. This is in Bischoff's words with uh, you know Nash sprinkled in. Uh, with f- Hogan. <laughs> fucking Hogan, uh, <laughs> him, and you know, and here, here's the thing about Hogan that I'm starting to enjoy. Right, 
I used to groan when I'd see them on these things because it's like, oh, here comes the bullshit express with this motherfucker. Now, though, I kind of look forward to it. But for the same reason, like, <laughs> here comes the bullshit. Yeah, express. it's like Let's Howard Stern. Kind of like, I got to see what he's going to say next. <laughs> yeah, what kind of bullshit did he whip up for this one? And boy, does he whip up some shit on this one and on fucking rivals. Does he, <laughs> he, woo, this motherfucker. He he forgot all about our sponsor, the interweb. <laughs> we can find out that this stuff is bullshit very easily, Hulkster brother. But uh, but yeah, I, I like the impression on this. I really enjoyed the story uh, that Bischoff told. Uh, about doing he was moderating a sting panel and this girl uh kind of it tells like this emotional story about how she used to watch uh nitro with her dad and it was really you know a good thing for her and asked bischoff later on if she would walk him down the aisle because her dad had passed on and he said yes and did it and they showed video and clips from it and stuff like that was pretty cool um you know, Nash talking about how, uh, you know, this is the first thing that they've done since uh, Scott Hall's passed on. And it still affects him, too, man. Like, they, you could tell. Uh, like, the poor guy lost his son recently, too. And I don't know. This might have been before that, even. That's a good so point. when they recorded this. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, it really overall, a pretty good package. I thought that it was pretty fair for the most part. Um, it, it's kind of like the oral history of the NWO from the guys who were involved in it. May, not everybody, obviously. Um, they did have DiBiase periodically showed up for some stuff on here. Um, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it went by pretty quickly as well. So I thought it was paced out pretty decently. And, you know, they did kind of gloss over some stuff at the end. But, you know, hearing Hogan's impression of the finger poke of doom, um, that was interesting because that's not a, a viewpoint that I think that we've seen time and time again. So that was, yeah, he admitted you know, they should have never did that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, he's absolutely right. And I always thought Nash kind of like took the opposite on that. Like what was, who cares? It wasn't that big of a deal. And it's like, no, it kind of fucking killed the territory, man. Like that was the one thing that they never really rebounded. And on top of it, as you pointed out the last time we were discussing it, it was the night after Goldberg's streak ended for the belt. Yep. They did the cattle prod. <laughs> the very next yep. night, they just give the belt back to Hogan with that. Because like Nash says that, we, we've talked about this already. We don't digress, but Hogan had creative booking power. And that's like, you oh, know, everybody learned their yeah. lesson with that. Okay. So I'm very glad you brought this up to Jay. So, so let's, get, let's get into this because this is something that we have direct knowledge of. We watched then, we followed then, we were reading stuff online then. Like we had, you know, we weren't in the dark with this. And of course, they bring up WCW Starcade 97, which was the pay-per-view with the big culmination between Hulk Hogan and Sting. Uh, over a year build that they had for it. This was, without question, I think you can say the biggest match uh, or it should have been the biggest match in WCW history. Would you disagree with no, that at all? No, and that's, okay. that's what Bischoff talked about, like how how well they did the year build and kept and they know, did. Kept sting. They let's let's get strong. into that. So like it, it was to the point of almost frustration from people as fans at the time. Like Sting's been coming out of the rafters for a year. When the fuck is he going to wrestle again? Um, dude, the anticipation for that was fucking bonkers. There's only a handful of things I can remember in my wrestling life that were as built up as that. And that's right there with anything else. So like we were fully invested, dude, that was one of the few WCW pay-per-views that I actually ordered myself 
um, at the time. I forget why I didn't even watch it with friends or something going on or whatever, but like I ended up ordering that pay-per-view and, uh, and the match was very disappointing and it wasn't just because that, you know, oh, it was a crappy match or it wasn't necessarily that it was the goofy finish. Now, according to them, this is what they said that it was supposed to be a fast three count and it wasn't. And Hogan says Sting was supposed to kick out at two, and it didn't. Sting says there was com- communication differences, but you get the feeling that Sting's being nice. Um, I don't believe that Sting was supposed to kick out at two. I think Hogan talked to Nick Patrick before the match and told him not to do the slow three count because they talk about how Hogan did not want to do the job, and then Hogan kind of says, well, and then with all the shit going on, I finally was like, all right, brother, I'll just do it, whatever. That Hogan was pissed that he had to do it. So that's how he sabotaged it, by telling Patrick to count normally. Sting was never supposed to kick out at three uh, because it was supposed to be a slow count. It was supposed to be like a dusty finish. And then Brett comes out and does his whole finish, which was convoluted shit after Hogan already technically won. Um and it fucked everything up. Yeah, like, that was really the beginning of the end for WC. It, it would take years for them to die off, obviously. But that's like, and you know this about wrestling, Jay. The easiest way to kill off a company or a territory is to build and build and build and build to something and then not give the fans what you promised. Not deliver. It takes away the fans' faith in your company to deliver, and it shows with lack of pay-per-view buys and attendance and things. People just don't trust you anymore, so they're not willing to pay up to see the conclusion. When you're good at doing the payoffs, that's how you make the money. Exactly. And that's Bischoff's take on that was another unique part of this because he was quick not to blame uh, Nick Patrick, who was the ref, for botching the, the fast count because the other thing was in the back, this was going back and forth because of Hulk's politicking, like you talked about and everything. And they they did the the thing that Vince McMahon's known for, and they just were changing their mind, you know, many times all the way up until the the match, which never and helps, do, you know. And and let me put a hole in Hogan's fucking bullshit story here for you, the Jay, because your boy was thinking about this, and you know, being pretty mindful wrestling fans. Uh, you can come to this conclusion pretty easily. So if you remember in the documentary, Hulk Hogan says he was thinking about maybe not doing the job because when he's so hot, now it becomes about making money, right? That's what he said. Right. Now that would work great if it was 1985, but it's not. Hogan was on a guaranteed contract. Hogan had proven up to that point that he could give two fucks about WCW's pay-per-view revenue because do you remember how it was very common, the J, for Hogan to not even defend his title Yeah, on we used to hate that as kids. And do you know why? Because he didn't have to. No, no. There was a reason. Okay. So if Hogan would wrestle on a pay-per-view, he got points off revenue from whatever the amount of business that the pay-per-view did. So WCW would keep him off pay-per-views because... They wanted the money. They didn't want, like, he was already getting paid plus this. This is, like, on top gotcha. of it, right? Yeah. So they wouldn't do it unless it was a major pay-per-view because it's like, well, if we're going to give him a percentage of it, we got to make more money. So Hogan's on a guaranteed contract in WCW, right? Isn't that what they're known for doing at this time? Yeah, that's why 
Nash particularly, like him, him and Hall, obviously that, that was their big thing, you know, cause okay. Nash says it in this, why did I go from WWF to WCW? Two reasons, less dates, more money. Exactly. So common sense question goes to you, the J why would Hogan be concerned about doing better business for a company uh, when he's not getting gate revenue? Um, he's only getting pay-per-view revenue when he's on pay-per-view, which is like anywhere from four to six times a year at that point. Essentially meaning there was no, no benefit yeah. to him to do better business because he wasn't going to get paid anymore to do better business. So does his comment then of whatever, I'm this hot brother, it, it, you know, you got to think about business and how to draw more money. Why yeah, in this scenario? That's exactly what we know. Doesn't make any sense. He, he wouldn't have made any more money to do that. Yeah. So, and we know Hogan ain't doing shit for the goodness of his fucking heart. It was either money or for promise of more money later. That's it. So that fucking puts a giant shotgun like hole in his fucking stupid story there. Um, so I wanted to get into that a little bit, but you know, overall though, um, it's what you'd expect. Uh, you, if you expect Hogan to spew horse shit, then, you know, you're not going to be disappointed with it. Um, I thought Bischoff, like, like we said earlier, was pretty good as well as Nash, um, told the story of the NWO pretty concisely for about two hours, cleaned up a little bit. Um, nothing too crazy that they didn't really get into. Um, they kind of gloss over the end of WCW in this one. Um, just kind of like, uh, they didn't want wrestling anymore, and they just kind of moved on from it. And then they also, one thing that they do during the revisionist history, speaking of the NWO, is they talk about when they go to WWE, WWE yeah. and they always talk about it way more grandiose than it ever was because the bottom line is the NWO was brought back to the WWE. It did not work at all. It resulted in another run for Hogan there in the yellow and red and getting the undisputed championship at the time. But uh, Hall and Nash were pretty much gone shortly thereafter and only Nash would come back. And it was pretty much to no fanfare almost every time people were generally disappointed to see him back. So that's the real story of the end of the NWO, not the one the WWE likes to kind of shove on people and has been doing, you know, since 2002 at this point. You mentioned had their revisionist history is very infamous, uh, but it did it did wrap up pretty emotionally uh, with, you know, we were talking about Kevin Nash talking about Scott Hall. So they talk about Scott Hall's passing towards the end into the uh, thing that you mentioned with Bischoff going to a comic con and meeting a fan uh, who he asked him to walk her down the aisle, which he did. And then of course it, it closes out with a little NWO highlight reel and their induction into the WWE hall of fame. Absolutely. So uh, not bad, not bad at all. Pretty decent way to start off biography. Um, but I got to say with caution, the J um, I'm weary because it started off pretty good last year too. And then by the end of it, I was like, oh, I'm fucking overwatching these. That's the thing. It, it depends on the subjects. Uh, for us, we always mentioned with, just for the, the perspective, as I say to people listening to us, is that we've been lifelong wrestling fans. So we know so much stuff about this. And so, again, it depends on the presentation of how deep they go in, into areas that we're not even very familiar with. And, and again, those subjects, I mean, there's some pretty interesting ones on this season uh, that include Jake, the snake Roberts, which is next week, dusty Rhodes, Kane, the iron Sheik, and China. Uh, but we talked about this before. I mean, we've seen, you know, this is probably 
I, I can't even count how many NWO uh, docs or mini docs that oh. we've seen. Uh, there was a China doc on Vice TV that was pretty good. Uh, there was uh, the story of Jake Roberts' family on Dark Side of the Ring. But th- that that's what interests me about this one, speaking out loud, is that it's all on Jake the Snake. So that one could yeah. be good, even, even though we also have the resurrection of Jake the Snake. But that was all like a very specific modern uh, you know, documentary on his recovery. So, so that one could be really good. Uh, so we'll see, you know, I, I'm looking forward to the dusty one for sure. I mean, those are, those of are probably the two most uh, interesting ones to me talking out loud with this season. And the China one, I'm, I'm dying to see how they, how they do that it. with the WWE. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see, man, we'll cover it and, you know, we'll talk as we do. It's, it's our platform and we'll talk as, as much or as little as, as we want, but we cover pro wrestling and it's season three of biography, just like that. And speaking of which, they also brought back a, a pretty cool show that they had uh, last year uh, called Rivals. Um, it was also a show that they previously had on the WWE Network a few years ago, uh, even though they kind of changed up the format a little bit. Um, and this one was on Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant. Now, as we talk about on here, this is stuff that we've seen a million times over. But... This was still really cool. It was fun good to hour. Watch. Yeah. Uh, really. I mean, because, dude, this is, you know, I've said this too. This is the feud that put wrestling literally into the stratosphere. Um, WrestleMania 3 was absolutely massive. Um, I was watching wrestling before WrestleMania 3, but I remember WrestleMania 3 was the thing that kind of like made me a fucking super fan of wrestling. Like, I, like, a lot of my friends were watching it. My family took an interest in it, kind of a thing. Um, it's really in our childhood, basically. The J WrestleMania three is kind of like the apex of where professional wrestling would be during the decade, as far as just sheer excitement and hype and build. Um, and not just that. The one thing that I love that they brought up on here is when they talk about the rematch or the the match that essentially. Andre the Giant would win the title illegitimately on uh, the main event. Um, And the reason why I'm glad they brought it up, and I don't think enough people talk about this, 33 million people watched that fucking match in that show. That is literally insane. It's a number that will never be broached again in the history of professional wrestling. I don't give a shit what anyone says. Um, television, like major broadcast television shows do not pull in ratings like that. Um, and that kind of shows you too, just in 19, that was in 1988 when that match happened, but it just showed you the absolute fervor that was surrounding this, this feud at the time. And it was really cool because for the first time, really on a WWE thing that I saw about Andre and Hogan, they talk about all the stuff that came before WrestleMania three. That they was tried cool. to, That's what I thought. They stood out. They always tried to build that up as like a first time meeting between the two, and it was yeah, not Shea at all. They had, yeah, they had a full feud in like 1980 in WWE or WWF at the time, uh, where Hogan was the bad guy, Andre was the baby face with Vince Senior. Um, yep, absolutely. Uh, they show, and my favorite thing that they showed from that it was really cool is uh, Freddie Blassie was managing Hogan at the time. And they did this thing where they slipped a piece of steel into his arm band or whatever the fuck it was. And he hit this clothesline on Andre and hit him right in the face and got him color. 
And it was pretty wild watching Andre like doing the piss off thing where he's like yeah, running bleeding. around, grabs bleeding, grabs the mic fucking from Vince, and he's like, Hogan, nobody does this to me. Like, that's really fucking cool. And I don't think enough people have seen that. So the fact that they put that in here is really cool. It kind of gave it another layer that like a lot of the previous stuff about Hogan and Andre didn't have at all. Dude, and I was dying because of the the get up that Hogan had on, like the robe that came out with those like things you hold, like unveil his yep. body and Blassie's, you know, pointing at him with the cane and they called him the human peacock. <laughs> yep. I, was, I forgot about that. I'm like yep. Hogan's goofy ass being called the human peacock in 80. I mean, cause they were basically, you know, it's so weird that the Thunderlips character from Rocky three that Hogan played is very similar to his old heel gimmick. Yeah. And like once, he was in the movie and took off with it. They immediately, like his gimmick immediately changed. He became a baby face yeah. and did a whole different kind of thing. Um, but yeah, man, it's that feud's very instrumental to Hogan's development to become who he would eventually be. Um, because as you know, the Jay, uh, Andre was a major gatekeeper in the world of professional wrestling. If you didn't pass his test, good luck, uh, especially working in New York. Like you, you know, like he would warn them, like, yeah, you don't want this fucking guy. And he would also deal with problematic wrestlers and things like that. And I think there's been a lot of bullshit lore by Hogan through the years uh, because Andre's been gone since 1993. So I think Hogan's had a big hand in kind of creating what type of history they had together. And we really don't know the real story. And we're probably not going to know because that revisionist history is kind of what we get now. Um, I don't think it's as cut and dry as Hogan makes it. And I don't think it's cut and dry as the WWE made it. I think Andre was just smart enough to know when and how to do business. And the fact that his body was breaking down on him at the time, he knew it might be one of his last handful of times to get like a really, really big mania payday. And I could just imagine what they received because I know that Bobby Heenan's gone on record to say the greatest single payday he's ever received in his entire career was for WrestleMania three. Oh, I'm sure. You know who uh, one of the talking heads that I really enjoyed in this, uh, not not talking about, like we always laugh about the randomness of the round table led by Freddie Prince yeah. Jr., but Sean yeah. Mooney. Yeah, I like Mooney. Yeah, I, he, he looks great for his age and things like that, and he had a good insight. He got emotional talking about Andre a few times, which I'll give credit. Hogan truly teared up. You know, Hogan does have a special place, as goofy as, as he is, you could tell, of Andre. So it was yep. like, that stuff was cool to see. Dude, Mooney had a podcast a couple years ago. I think uh, there was a yeah, there was a lot of fun. For, it didn't last very long, but it, it was a lot of fun. Um, and that's somebody too, because for years I always kind of thought about like you know whatever. Like I knew Sean Mooney was a newscaster, but I'm like, why has nobody tried to like talk to this dude? Yeah. You know, so like the fact that he he was able to do a few things, and he even hosted one of like the uh, what was it like. The remember the matches like they they were unearthing matches. I was gonna say, he's popped DVD up here and the there, time. yeah, especially with the yeah, network, like, the old network, yes. and stuff. Yep, like it was nice to see him do stuff. So it was nice to kind of see him do something like that again. Uh, you know, especially because like, dude, sadly, he's one of like the voices of the '80s for the company that's still alive. Yeah, like exactly. they can't get Mean Gene anymore. There's like there's just a lot of guys that are no longer Alfred with us. Hayes. So. Yeah, like they're all gone in that capacity. Jesse Ventura is not doing this stuff. You know, Gorilla Monsoon's no longer with us. So Bobby the Brain's no longer with us. So 
it's very limited on who they can get at this point. But but yeah, I mean, I, dude, I thought they did the roundtable a lot better on this one than they did in the previous season because the the roundtable just felt like tacked on. Right. But like they felt like they expanded it a little bit in this one. And I'm like, if they do that throughout the season, it's going to actually give credence to why the fucking roundtable's there in the first place. Right. Yeah, because I remember mentioning specifically – Nash talking about it, and it's like, man, it seems like he just got a paycheck. Although you don't know what they cut out and things, and I get that from, you know, putting it together, the production side of it. But like, I mean, he he like barely said a few things. You know, yeah, so, just like, like grunt, like yeah, like you said, like what's the point if you're doing stuff like that? But yeah, it was a little bit more expansive in this uh, season. But yeah, man, I really like this. I mean, there's you know not a ton to talk about here because it's just watching this episode. But I, I thought that they they handled the information well. The flow of it was pretty good. Really entertaining. Uh, like we've said, we've we've heard this story a million times over. But like this is one of the nostalgia pieces that like I can actually enjoy pretty much every time out because it's such an instrumental feud and such a big part of my childhood that spending an hour kind of reliving it's not a big deal. And they did a really good job in the presentation with it. And it went a little bit further into the older stuff, like I said, than than uh, I was even expecting it to. So it was a pretty solid episode overall. Good way to start the season. Yeah, I'm right with you. I mean, they they had old uh, footage of interviews with Piper, you know, with the Piper's pit build up of of Andre like ripping Hogan's cross and making him bleed and that whole like classic stuff. And and I liked it because. It, it kind of climaxed, of course, with the WrestleMania three match, but they told the rest of the history of the rivalry with Andre really breaking down, but still going out there uh, with the July 88 steel cage at what they called WrestleFest and, and everything. Yeah. And, and they, they, they gave Andre props, which he well deserved, of course, because, you know, Mooney, it was the one saying this. He's like, yeah, if anybody saw him in the back like I did, you would have thought, how the hell is he going to do this? And then he went out there and completely flipped the switch. You know, as soon as that adrenaline do, hits, he put on a show, as he does. Do you remember that match? The WrestleFest match? Vaguely. I think I'm going to say that remember, once randomly. Well, no. You've seen it more than once, and I'll tell you why. Uh, remember back in the day, like before we really had our tape collections and shit, and we all kind of had just like a handful of tapes that we'd all kind of circulate around? Yeah. I had the Coliseum home video with that Hulk Hogan Real American, and that match is yeah, on there. Gotcha. And the reason why I was going to bring it up is it's a steel cage match. Um, that match is much better than the WrestleMania match. Like, it's not even close. It's significantly better. Um, but people don't, it's, I just don't think it's been nearly widely seen. The, yeah, the like pageantry the and everything. Yeah. Like, of course. It was so special. But yeah, I get what you're and saying. And it was in a, and it was a big ass stadium too in Milwaukee that they did it. So. You know, that match was still drawn throughout 87. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, they were able to draw some major houses with that that match. So, uh, but pretty decent overall. Uh, really happy with this one. So, we'll look and, and see where we go next week with, uh, I believe it's Undertaker and Mankind. Is that right, the Jay? Correct. Okay. So, we'll have that for you guys next week here on the podcast. But we're up against our very last commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to wrap up the show. We're going to talk some goofs. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. It's live IWC Professional Wrestling. Saturday, March 25th at 7 p.m. at Mark's Court Time in Elizabeth, PA. This is 22. 22, celebrating 22 years of IWC, also live on IWCWrestling.com and Fight TV. Hey, everybody, this is Herman James. 
for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Goofs. And we're back, and it's that time once again. So the J, what do we got this week on the Goof front? Uh, taking the setting, hey Ed, the Penguin Farmless Lagoon and Waterfall of Goose as we take our stroll down here in midwinter. But it's still beautiful. Everything's glistening. There's still some wildlife. There's some raccoons over there on yonder, hey Ed, so... If we uh, can maybe get cool with them, we could name them like we named the penguins. But I don't know. Raccoons are fickle little beasts. Yeah, I don't know. It's not worth all the extra literal shit that we'll deal with around here. <laughs> what, what do people call them? It's like the, the uh, urban like wolverine or something or the dumpster cat. Or something. <laughs> the, the, the urban wolverine. <laughs> I'm... I don't know, but I can tell you it's probably not that. (laughs) That's going to be my MMA name. I'm going to be a middle-aged MMA fighter named the Urban (laughs) Wolverine. Like, here comes the Urban Wolverine. He's 0-13 here (laughs) in MMA. He just started training two weeks ago. His longest fight was 37 seconds. And it was against a guy that was 72 pounds lighter and was five foot three. But it shows you the state we're in. But welcome, everybody, to episode 152 of the What's Real podcast, GRG. First Gerg. up, I'm, I'm, sur- I'm sure you saw this one, dude. And the first topic on Goose or Goose episode 152 is the antics of Patrick Mahomes at the Super Bowl parade in Kansas City. Dude, first he had off, ski he goggles was, on. He was definitely hammered. Hammered. He gave away the Super Bowl trophy to some random fan. <laughs> Just my, my favorite too is uh, he's he's on the bus and like fans were catching football and like Travis Kelsey yeah. like throwing the ball and like he goes like puts his hands yeah, up like to get the ball and, and it's like you can tell like they had the camera it was like it wasn't moving it was stationary and you can only see him like from the waist up. And you just see this sorry ass like football throw, and he's just looking at the dude like, bro, you got to fucking throw he just it on him. <laughs> yeah, like. Ugh. And also, as like, we say, the flow of the show, he's wearing the WWF title the whole time, dude. That motherfucker got that belt right after the game, and I swear to God, he wore that shit for a week. Yeah, he showers with it. Yeah, Jesus Christ, his wife's gonna be Patrick Mahomes. Look, his wife's going to do an interview where she's like, you know, it was great him winning the Super Bowl, but he wore that goddamn wrestling. But like he turned into Andy Kaufman. He's like wearing it under his clothes, yeah. trying trying to defend it against family members he's like at Santos. home. He's like trying to take. Yeah, he's he's wrestling the the uh, Aztec vampire women. <laughs> Patrick Mahomes versus the Aztec vampire. And then you always have those assholes like, who's supposed to be a role model? It's like, dude, your boy just won a Super Bowl. He's like one of the healthiest people on the planet. Let him get fucking drunk for a day. Dude, people would not want me to be in his position. I'd be like at the fucking victory parade blacked out. Oh, look at Brady. Remember he threw the swing party in like a goddamn creek. Yeah, like they're... Dude, I swear to God they did that shit so like fans would stay the fuck away from him. Yeah. Dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> this is the uh, uh, the morbid portion of GRG. Hey, yo, um, you know, since we covered necromantic last week, I figured we'd put something like this oh, in here. Oh man! Uh, the headline is: A woman with serial killer portraits in her bedroom was found guilty of murdering her boyfriend. Huh? Who would have thunk? <laughs> the woman is said to have shown off the dead body in a video call to a friend and picked up tips from murder documentaries. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like, like you're probably not a pro if you're like, all right, 
You like there's a dead body in your house. So now I got to put on that Netflix thing about Ted Bundy. See if they tell me what to do here. Like, yeah, it's you're already losing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, her name's Shay Groves. So take that for what it is. Hey, y'all. She's a 27 okay. year old British woman who had British portraits woman. of serial killers on her bedroom walls and was found guilty of brutally murdering her boyfriend by stabbing him in the chest and neck. She was convicted Friday of killing the 22-year-old in her own home, with prosecutors arguing she flew into a jealous rage after she discovered her boyfriend had allegedly been speaking with a 13-year-old girl over Facebook. She claimed self-defense, but pleading not guilty. The evidence against her convicted the jury. That wasn't the case. Nice, creepy fucking people, huh? Yeah, the the one that really got her um, convicted was during the five-week trial. Prosecutors said Groves made a video call to a friend Vicky bait up bait up. Hey, eel. that's going to be another one of my new numerous aliases. <laughs> <laughs> J man bait up um, showing after I'm the murder. St- I'm still stick. I'm still sticking to Ron Mexico. <laughs> yeah. over here. Uh, but she showed the bloody body in, in the video and told her friend I've done him. And it wasn't in the way we had originally hoped. Hey, Ed, she killed him. <laughs> well, never mind. <laughs> I'm just not. Not going to bring humor into this area of the show. Um, speaking of comedic deaths, uh, man, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta send you this picture on the air oh, as great. we do. Yes, great. <laughs> You're like wonderful. Let's see. Send via direct message. We are professionals here at the What's Real podcast. It is set hand as a man suffers a heart attack, dies at work. Coworkers gather for a group selfie, thinking he'd fallen asleep. Do you see the picture? Christ. Yeah. <laughs> they're, all, they're thumbs up. They're doing the Hawaiian, like Honolulu symbol of peace. Dude, like, oh, and he's dead. The, he's dead as fuck. Yeah. That's weird. This is a genuine photograph, but the dead man isn't actually dead. He's just sleeping. Dude, the, the chick behind him that's doing like the sleep thing with her hands, like, <laughs> yeah. he's taking a nap. It's like, nope, he's dead. And the dude, the bald dude with glasses, like, <laughs> like, yep, that's a. That's a dead guy next to you, brother. That's another one like you talk about where we're seeing just the picture. It's like, dude, is there footage of the aftermath when they all realize? Yeah, it's like, you know, it's kind of weird. Dave's been over there sleeping for yeah, seven like Mitch hours. Mitch from the goes over and checks his pulse like, guys. He just falls out of the chair. <laughs> yeah, just shits everywhere. Like, uh-oh. See, this is why I couldn't work somewhere like that because I'd be like, all right, quick. Somebody put on some fucking reggae music and see if we start dancing <laughs> <laughs> next up we travel to new york city hey you know, one of your favorite places on the plan at oh yeah as uh escaped owl becomes a celebrity and learns to catch rats so new yorkers yeah. do give a hoot hey ed yeah i mean that's one thing about new york that i like you any bodega you go into there's cats and people are like, this is disgusting. It's like, no, the cats are better than the fucking rats that would be in here if the cats weren't here. Yeah. So, yeah, I totally see how a rat-killing fucking owl, owl is now the hero of New York City. Yeah, and, of course, everybody in the uh, comment section is like, you know, the typical shit, like owls, because there's no other stories happening around the world right now. Meanwhile, I'm like, for all the other shit we see, I'd rather hear about a fucking celebrity owl killing rats. I mean, I would have definitely taken the owl story over the fucking uh, necrophiliac story that we just got. Yeah, exactly. Next up, this is something I was going to see if uh, you, Cam, and I wanted to possibly enter in 2024. 
It's a lightsaber dueling championship for real. It takes place in um, France. I'm retired. I can't, I'm not allowed to compete anymore. I'm in the Hall of Fame. Oh, that's actually, right. So. Yeah, I remember you were so yeah. good at lightsaber dueling. But uh, yep. I sent you the the uh, video just for some visuals. Uh, but it's hilarious. Like these people have these crazy getups, and they have lightsaber duels. I don't know how it's scored, but uh, they said that the championship awakens the force in France. I haven't seen France, so just don't see a little damn champion. Because it was so long ago, there's not video of this, but you know what my thing used to always be when I would beat somebody? What's that? Like 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 the way I would celebrate is I would uh I'd I'd like put the lightsaber in, you know, then I'd put it like right where my dick is and hit the switch. So uh, it looks like I'm like the light boner. Yeah. Like that was that was I'm the I'm the guy that created that. Like I'm, that's I'm my done. That's my legacy to the sport. That's what I left. The force is strong in France, hey Ed, or as we say here on the What's Real podcast, the force is strong in France. <laughs> the false is strong <laughs> last but not least uh, according to cnn hey ed we go over to cnn a nearly two thousand year old wooden object in the shape of a penis could have served as a sexual tool by ancient romans in britain according to a new study yeah and i mean if you know anything about the ancient romans that totally sounds and pun completely intended <laughs> right up there the first comment i thought it was a club <laughs> hey you know it is what it, oh now i'm seeing the uh the guy that almost died at the spring training today as he's on a gurney and it's literally uh blurred out <laughs> i'm like then why did why did you show a blurred figure getting taken out on a gurney yeah i was sorry i was i was telling ed on TV. the way into goose or goose that he's like oh spring training started looking forward to those pirates this year i'm like yeah somebody already dropped on the field like it wasn't a player, but there's an ambulance and somebody collapsed. So that shows you the yeah. looming dark cloud over that franchise. Yeah, I'm sure that's a good omen for the season. But when somebody uh, dies the first week, back to the fucking spring training, two thousand year old wooden dildo. Um, oh yeah. The first Sorry. comment said, "Looks like a hammer." Or get this, hey Ed, because I never heard of this before. A cudgel, a C U D G E L, with a groove where a rope or leather strap was tied around it to hang up over one shoulder yeah i, I, I think it's a dildo I, bro yeah i'm going with dildo on this one too imaginations are running a tad wild it's like like what like did you not do you not know people well, you're gonna like love somebody people? saying imagination's running wild and he's talking about a cudgel with a grove yeah it's like because i'm the one that's being imagined that's what i mean yeah and that's the word for the day peeps listening to us here on goose or goose the word of the day cudgel Suck my cudgel. Yeah, take care for what it's worth. But as I say to my bruma from another muma, between Mahomes getting hammered with the WWE title on, to a TMZ murder lady and to the heart attack pick, to the glorious hero owl of New York City, lightsaber duels and fra, and a ancient sex toy. Truly, goofs are goofs. So if you guys are listening on iTunes, feel free to give us a five-star review. It helps out the algorithm, gets more eyes and ears on the program. Also, no matter where you're listening, don't forget to subscribe to the show. 
Um, and of course, you can listen to us each and every week on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, such as Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and ChurchillPictures.com. If there's something you'd like to add to the show, you can do so through email at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that is whatsrealpod at gmail.com. But before we get out of here, hear the J revving it up. So the J, take it away. Revving it up. Hey, Ed, like I'm going to do a recon mission to New York City and recruit the owl hero known as Rat Killer to be a part of the lagoon and waterfall. But yeah, I love the show. Hey, Ed, it's been another great week, another marathon. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm beat up. And we didn't even do Thursday Night Prime, but I love it. Love the journey. Love the show. To our producer, the wizard behind the boards and the blood flow and flesh, we appreciate what you do, Cam. That consistent, constant, weekly 16K sound. Keep being you, brother. We appreciate you. To my brother, hey, Ed, love you, man. It's been another great week. Stay safe. Stay healthy out there. I'm getting to the point because I'm about to pass out. You'll hear the J next week. That's right. That's about it for us this week here on the show. Shout out to our producer, Cam, for all the hard work he puts it in. Because as we know here on the podcast, nobody beats the whiz. The J, clang, clang. Another successful title defense of the podcast championships of the universe. And we are undefeated, and we will always stay that way. So that is it for us this week here on episode 152. Don't forget to join us for episode 153 next week and beyond. So stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you here next week on the What's Real Podcast. What's real? What's real?